Hello and welcome to the first Rankin Review of 2021. And first and foremost, congratulations to everyone out there for surviving 2020. What a crazy, just batshit year it was. And um, I'm still dealing with a lot of the repercussions. As much as I'm trying to, you know, be positive and face forward, uh, yeah, I confess we gotta do a clip show to start the year off. I've been having some very serious technical difficulties. Um, the feed, since the update on my site, has sort of unplugged me from a lot of podcast feeds. I've come to realize, so since the new season started, a lot of my listeners have not been catching the show. You can always, always get the show at rankingreview.ca, and I'm working on getting my feed fixed and everything like that back up and running, and hopefully that'll happen soon. So thank you to everybody who's still out there, and yeah, it's frustrating. And on top of that, I've had a lot of technical issues with my own computer and with my own sort of tech, and just in the age of COVID, it's been harder to get people to do shows. Everybody's sort of distracted by it. I think everybody's in this sort of weird headspace, so I don't want to be making a big bitch about it, and I promise you that there's new episodes of Rankin Review coming on, but it changes are in the future. I think you're going to see some more solo shows for Rankin Review in order for me to just keep the output the way I'd like it to be, and um, yeah, I just... I don't like to do clip shows, but if there's a free podcast, and I, I just can't reroute my life to make everything work all the time. So if I'm going to give you a clip show, I'm going to give you a really good clip show. One of the things when I started out doing this podcast, I just wanted to be fair to the movies. I didn't want the podcast to be about hate. You know, I find that kind of boring. So uh, what you're going to hear here, at least with the six of these coming reviews, is where I failed at that. There's going to be six movies which I just absolutely failed to hide my contempt that I had for. I mean, there are certain films that I won't even bother to review for my show that I just know that I I, I can't really be constructive about, but every now and then I get broadsided by something. So you're going to hear a little bit of hate. But to help that sort of sour... We're going to balance it with a little bit of sweet. There's also going to be six reviews here presented of films that I just love, that I endorse, that I think everybody should give them a shot if they love movies. You know, if, if you've been listening to Rankin Review and you kind of vibe with my opinion, uh, I back these six movies with all of my heart. So um, it's just going to be an interesting sort of ping pong of, of, of opinions that you're going to be hearing in this Songs of Love and Hate. You're also going to hear familiar voices. Scott Lehman has three reviews coming up. Jason Debray shows up for two reviews. Would you believe Lee Beckman shows up in this episode? Anita Massey? Eric Jurgens, K2. Karen Giese's going to be on the show. Brendan Cook. Brock Knudsen, Damian Bartlett. There's just a, a, a lot of voices to be heard. And as always, you'll hear me, your host and random Canadian, Larry Parsons. As always, you're going to be hearing spoilers for the movies being reviewed and ranted over. And as always, you can send me your feedback to rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. Um, my name is Larry Parsons. I'm your host in Random Canadian, and I really do appreciate your ears. And there is more Rank and Review in our future. 2021. 2021, you guys. Thanks for listening.
do it. Let's do this. Um, of all the films that I bring baggage to, I think the Evil Dead remake is possibly the one that, that, that had the most to live up to in my mind. I'm going to say, I think I'm agreeing with you, right. that I go into this a huge Evil Dead fan. Not the movie itself. Well, yes, the movie, but the whole franchise. It's one of my favorite horror franchises of all, all time. time. All time, for sure. And especially uh, of the 80s. I, I that, hold that one-two punch of Evil Dead and Evil Dead Two is just amazing. Like I will watch anything Sam Raimi makes for the rest of, of his career because of those two movies. Yeah, if he released a video of him taking a bath, yeah, so I'd, be it. Yeah, I'll we check that out. It. It's probably got great camera work. Maybe Bruce Campbell will show up as a cameo. It's <laughs> the guy who pans him a towel. Does <laughs> <laughs> sir? Um, yeah, I do. I agree. I hold it very high. It's yeah. had a lot to live up to. So I went in a little bit resistant. I gotta say, I was like, all right, if you're gonna bring me some Evil Dead, Mr. Fede Alvarez, who's the name of this di- uh, director and co-writer, you better, you better bring something awesome. That's produced by the... Original. Sam, Sam Raimi is on board for this. So that did make me feel a little bit good, Safer. saying, you know what, this is, it's gonna be loved. Yeah. Um, but that fucking trailer, though. It was really strong. When I first saw that trailer, the Red Band trailer for Evil Dead... Seeing the that, tongue split... That trailer was better. Amazing. That trailer was better than the five movies that we already talked about. I mean, <laughs> well, the brilliant choice that they made in this remake was to not try to recreate Ash. Yeah. If you tried to bring a figure into this movie to step into the shoes of Bruce Campbell, it was immediately doomed to failure. Yeah. And I think Fede Alvarez knew that. And instead, what he set out to do is to make the movie that Sam Raimi was trying to make when he made the original Evil Dead with all of the tools that Sam Raimi didn't have when he made Evil Dead. This is a capital H horror movie. This movie is not fucking around. (laughs) Like, it is one of the most horrifyingly violent and entertaining movies that I have seen in recent memory. I am a huge fan of this remake and I did not expect to be <laughs> it's weird because it's a story about a bunch of kids who go to a cabin, cabin and do woods. everything wrong yeah. oh here's a book sealed with barbed wire made of <laughs> bound in human flesh that, that says, says do, do not, not read, read. <laughs> let's clip it open and start sounding out some of these words like uh, ostensibly that's just fucking ridiculous <laughs> but I have watched this movie <laughs> A lot. Like, I don't tire of it. I love it. And it is a better movie than Sam Raimi's Evil Dead. Whoa. Whoa, that's... That's hard. Those are big words. On a production level, on an acting level, on on a visceral impact level, on an emotional affecting level, it, 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 it achieves everything that it's trying to achieve. And the Evil Dead movie, it's got a lot of great scenes, but I don't think it achieves everything it wants to be. I think it's hobbled by its budget and the amateur stuff yeah, going around I, it. I, watched I the, love Evil Dead. I'm not saying Evil Dead's a bad movie. No. I hope that that's not what you're no, hearing. No, I, I get you what you're saying. I mean, I, I watched a documentary recently where uh, Greg Nicotero mm-hmm. had said if, the, if, if they could make the effects proper mm-hmm. in the first Evil Dead, you know, if they had the money or the resources to have the effects that they wanted to do that movie would have been scarier than The Exorcist yeah and uh, I mean maybe that's kind of what you're saying here that uh, 
It's a scarier movie. I, 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 it, it I enjoy watching the original Evil Dead a lot. I still get a lot out of it even today, even with all its rough corners. And it's got the rough corners, yeah. Yeah. This remake, man, I, I think that part of it was whereas I had higher expectations of some of these other remakes, like, well, you know, why, why couldn't they make it an improved version of, you know, The Hitcher? Why, why couldn't yeah, they, you it, know? it shouldn't be too hard. It shouldn't be that, yeah, but they, they kind of failed. In this one, I expected them to fail, and maybe that expectation was what made this sucker punch hit me, <laughs> because, shit. Well, you, you can tell, they, went, they made a clear attempt to make what they could... It's like they try to make the most terrifying movie that they possibly could. And I think that's the tagline for the movie, yeah. isn't it? It's uh, it's a grueling experience in terror. That was the tagline for the original film. Right, this one, isn't it, say, on the poster, this. I think it says, uh, the most terrifying movie you will ever experience, yeah. or something like that. But uh, And you can see from every image, from uh, from everything from the image to the mood and the sound, uh, there, there's a siren sound that they play now and then when yeah. bad shit is happening. And for whatever, that puts chills. And uh, yeah. the way the creatures move, everything, the over-the-top gore is there. Um, well, let's, let's start. So, so here we are, uh, five minutes into the review, and I think we should start talking about it. The opening sequence. <laughs> yeah. Terrified woman, filthy, bloody, staggering through foggy, horrifying trees, gets totally <laughs> smashed in the face for the butt of a rifle by these two hayseed fellows. Cut to same woman tied to a pole in some obscure basement mm -hmm. and uh, uh, some horrible ritual taking place, which involves in, in, engulfing this poor woman in flames and then blowing her head off. And it's her father who gets to pull the trigger. And then we have credits. <laughs> yeah, when she speaks in that demonic voice. Yeah. Um, yeah, it gets you. Yeah, and the acting's really good there when she's pleading and begging her, please don't do this to me, you believe her. And when she turns demonic, you believe yeah. her. <laughs> right? um, and so, yeah, these kids come to this obscure cabin in the woods to help their friend Maya kick a nasty drug habit. She's been to this roadie a few times before. A lot of them are a little bit tired of her. And it was a really good uh, excuse for them to stay in the cabin longer than they would have otherwise. Right. Because they don't believe Maya. They don't trust Maya. They think Maya's going to think of any ridiculous excuse. Sure, the tree raped you. Exactly. Okay, Maya. She's going to think of any ridiculous excuse to get out of this cabin because yeah. she wants to go get her fix. But she wants to get out of the cabin because she fucking knows that something terrible is going to happen. Yeah. She brings that performance. When she's whispering to her brother mm -hmm. in, that, in that scene, you, you hang on every slowly spoken whispered word. And yeah. it's a... And, and how frustrating it must be for her because she's probably deserved this lack of trust. She's probably earned it, right? Yeah. She's but done she it is actively trying to save her friend's life and they are having none of it. <laughs> it's brutal. And you kind of see her brother, I think, is the, the character that you're watching thinking, I think he's going to be, be the, the ash. ash. Yeah, he's even got the denim shirt, mm -hmm. I believe. So he kind of looks like he takes a little bit of physical abuse, kind of like Ash. Yeah. Ash and is very they, meek in the first film. A lot of people forget that. Yeah, he's, he's not, not a badass at all. He's not the one-liner Ash that we see nope. in Evil Dead 2. This, is, this has nothing to do with Evil Dead 2. This nope. is the straight-ahead... No laughs. Let's make the scariest movie we can possibly make. I don't think there's like, any deliberate laughs anywhere in this movie. I think they no. really... Like... And, and I, don't, I don't know if I look at it as, as much as a remake. Um, I look at it as another story that, in that fits world. in the whole Evil Dead universe. Yep. It's a worthy member of the whole family, I think. Uh, just an alternate 
Evil Dead story, I think. And it, it works, for sure. I'm sort of shocked, like, again, like, why not an Evil Dead 2? <laughs> it's like, if you can remake Evil Dead so successfully, why not move on? But where do they go from here? And can they turn on the camp for number two now? Or do they, once they've established this world, do they tread forward? Yeah, I don't know if you do a remake of a... I, I'm not sure about sequels to remakes. Yeah, they. it's tricky. Yeah, I mean, Halloween tried, Hills Have Eyes. Um, they don't usually work as well as the first shot, but... Just a few of the things that you'll be treated to if you watch this movie. And please do. <laughs> a woman slaps another woman, throws her down on the ground, flips her over, and full-on vomits into her face. Sam Raimi loves people <laughs> vomiting on each other's faces, doesn't he? Like, uh, drag me to hell? Or drag yeah, <laughs> drag me to the hell is just full of fluids. There's a lot of fluids I, in that uh, Yeah, it's gag-inducing. Uh... There's a scene where the guy who we should hate, but I still like, the dude who reads from the book, who actually oh. cuts the book open and reads from it, who is responsible for all of this. And his he... girlfriend stabs him in the face several times with a needle, and we see him remove oh, no. the needle from his lower eyelid. It's the most horrifying thing. Like, oh. And these are just a couple of moments. Like, they're all over this oh. movie. Like, they're all over this movie. And that's without even talking about tree rape. Tree rape. And that was one of the few um, things that they took from the original. That's from the original, right. Yeah. And it's interesting. Sam Raimi has said that he's kind of a little bit embarrassed by that sequence as he grew up. He's like, it's a sequence he came up with as a young man and thought it was badass and cool. But as he's grown up and got a little more perspective on it, he thought it was maybe a little bit distasteful. So it's funny because he did it again in <laughs> Evil Dead 2. So I mean, he must have not thought it was that distasteful. But I guess it was less implicitly rape and it was more the trees killed that woman. And infected like, her with whatever demonic with presence. demonic presence. And, and you're missing the biggest ick kind of moment I think is the slicing of her own tongue oh she with, splits uh, her tongue oh my goodness that is <laughs> such a I watched I showed my wife that scene <laughs> she, she and she had to that. turn her head away and she was gagging she said this I <laughs> started making that sound and she could not watch it so you're watching an effective horror movie with somebody who's gay <laughs> yeah and I thought that is so disgusting I love the hell out of it <laughs> um yeah uh, we engage with the characters in a way that, uh, like, they, they seem real to me. In the original movie, it's a group of people that come to a cabin to be killed. And they're two sets of couples, really, and they're fine. But everybody's motivations, except for the idiot who reads the book, I completely buy. Mm -hmm. And uh, the fact that her brother, like you said, the guy uh, who, David, played by Shiloh Fernandez, you, you kind of expect to play this heroic role. And in the end... This and he kind of does for... He does him to a certain extent, until he's no longer alive. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, oh, okay, <laughs> the hero's dead now. <laughs> the movie's about Maya. Yeah. And uh, that final confrontation, which is a complete new invention, but that I completely buy in this evil dead world. Once the spirits have claimed X number of souls... The abomination shall rise and... A blood rain falls. Yeah. I can't imagine they had a sprinkler system filled with red Kool-Aid or something like this. And the entire end sequence, Maya is fighting a demonic version of herself. In and she is completely alone. And it is terrifying. It is a great... And I believe that's the scene that put them over the top. This is the, uh, the officially the bloodiest movie of all time. <laughs> yep. And I think once it's raining blood, that, yep. uh, that puts you over the edge. And All stops... Pulled out in this movie. 
Like, they were not fucking around. Like I said at the start of this movie, they wanted to make a capital H horror movie, and they succeeded in a way that I could not have anticipated. I have to say, as much as I live the same way I said with Tom Raimi and the Evil Dead movies, this Fede Alvarez guy, yeah. anything he does... I want to see what he does next. Anything he does, be it a romantic comedy or, you know... I don't know. <laughs> and, and How the I, West was fun three. You know, I don't give a shit. I will show up and watch it. So um, I'm not sure what his next project is, but uh, I'll be on board. And, and one of the things they did was uh, with this remake, there was a lot of little Easter eggs, little nods, I no. guess, yep. for fans of the franchise. You had uh, Ash's car, if you notice, was yep. in the back. It was an abandoned old car. If When they first drive up to the cabin, you hear, if you listen quietly, you can hear a the faint... Knock. Join us, but mm-hmm. it's very faint. You can barely. But fans of Evil Dead, they hear it. Yeah. Um, Ash cuts off his his hand very obviously in the Evil Dead. Yeah. Film. In this one, we have someone chop off their whole arm <laughs> uh, with the carving knife, which is a, a beautiful, scene. grizzly scene. Yeah. Uh, nail so gun. <laughs> nail guns in the face. <laughs> She's that girl that's like cutting her smile into her mouth with the, the broken. Blade. Yeah. Yeah. So. This is not for uh, for the squeamish. This film, no. They don't make movies like this, though. Like, there's always I don't know if it's the influence still of Scream, but there always seems to be a wink or like let's stop and give them a break or let's you know. Uh, hey, where's our comic relief? Yeah, we let's have let's one get guy. up to the point of where the uh, needle stabs him in the eye and then cut away. <laughs> but this is not what this movie is about. They are not going to spare us anything. And uh, it's glorious. One question I have on it is, uh, I believe when they read the book, it says, when five souls are claimed, the, the skies will rain blood right. and the abomination shall rise. And I've always had issue with wondering, and not always, I guess, but you wonder, were there five souls that were taken and who counts as a soul? Maybe it's um, five in one night. Yeah, I, I, just, I started wondering because it sometimes adds up and it depends who you listen to if it, if if it, it matters. But it then does. at the end, does it really matter? This is just something that he read. Mm-hmm. in this book and there's, it's been rewritten there's scribbles on top of scribbles and yeah. uh, so I guess it doesn't matter how many souls have been taken this shit is happening right now and you have to to deal with it um, and when they first made that switch to Maya being the hero at first I wasn't sure what I thought of this thinking right. uh, well wait she was just the demon in the cellar right. trying to kill everybody and now She's we're back. rooting for her but um, after revisit it's I mean, it was a chance they took changing things up and I, I like what they did they were not going to be able to recreate Ash so they didn't try yeah. and bravo I think the two takeaways I have from this is that it justifies the existence of remakes because I could not have anticipated that the Evil Dead remake would be like that I would be this happy about it like they, I was completely completely broadsided by how good it was I honestly yeah, I think we're I sat down in the theater and I folded my arms and I looked at the screen and like bring it Evil Dead and they did yeah I think this was out one day before I seen it I, <laughs> yes. this was one I had to see I t- like I said that trailer it sold me and I think yeah. I, I expected it to be based good. on that trailer this looks incredible this mm-hmm. looks like a horror movie with the capital H horror movie yeah. like you said um, and yeah, they brought it. Yeah. I think we're the other hand a bit here, but the other lesson: if you find a book that is wrapped with barbed wire that says "Do not read this book," <laughs> do not read it. Don't <laughs> fucking read it, moron.
Okay, let's talk about the worst movie of this list. Uh, movies. Oh, well, that, well, that was forward. I'm sorry, but we saved the worst for last. Uh, the last time we spoke about Roland Emmerich, uh, Karen Giese and I, I believe, were talking about Independence Day. Okay. And I gave it the low praise of being Roland Emmerich's finest hour. Ooh. <laughs> You're wasting no time. Um, it's interesting. This movie... It has the unpleasant distinction of managing the impossible. It made me dislike Ferris Bueller. You know what? I was sort of thinking about this. You know what they should have done? Is they should have hired Matthew Broderick and said, Okay, you're going to be Ferris Bueller, but you're Ferris Bueller like 15 years from now. Maybe a little bit farther. Fighting Godzilla. And he could turn and talk to us through the camera and and make commentary about it. You see, I would have paid to see... I think that's the movie they should have made. And in fact, you know, he takes, you know, Godzilla and says, Hey, man... Let's go, you know, paint New York right, and they, you know, have a car, and him and Godzilla, are, you know, drive it along, and even that, ding, 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 yeah, still surfing the wave of the tremendous success of Independence Day. Roland yeah, Emmerich. at this at this point, Dean Devlin and Roland Emmerich were Hollywood golden boys. And, you know, they never stopped making big blockbuster movies. They just haven't made a good one. <laughs> they have not made a good one. Yeah. I think that this might be the worst. Well, I haven't seen 2012 or 10,000 BC. Oh, I haven't seen 10,000 BC. I couldn't say about that. But uh, I think it's worse than 2012. Okay. Well, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> uh, and, you know, that's that's challenging. That's challenging yeah, if you look at their film, if you look at their filmography, you just don't... Yeah, because we've got what? They, they were known for, at this point, Stargate... Universal uh, Soldiers. Universal Soldiers. <laughs> yeah. And then Independence Day. So, yeah, he's one of those... I don't know. He's a successful filmmaker, but not a very good one. Yeah. I'm sorry to be so brutal about this. At this, this. point, they were known for you know big-budget-looking movies, but made on a smaller budget. So, so here we have this Godzilla property, and uh, the marketing campaign around this movie was quite brilliant, and there yeah. were some clever trailers for it, and the yeah. anticipation for it was quite great. I remember, yeah. I believe, you and I went to see it. I, it might have even been opening night. I think it was. Um... And I didn't like it then, and it's aged terribly. I like it less now than I liked it then, and I did not like it then. (laughs) Yeah, I actually fell asleep the first time I saw this movie, a little bit. Um, Uh, To pile on the hate and the uh, pain towards the director, though, I think that this movie reaches a special level of hubris that Mm -hmm. we did not see again Mm -hmm. until M. Night Shyamalan did Lady in the Water. You know what, I'm glad you're talking about this, because I want to pull what it's called a Shakespearean aside. Well, can I finish it? Sorry. What I'm trying to say is that, like, in Lady in the Water, not only does... Shyamalan have a guy who's a critic yeah. who dies a bad death yeah. but he casts himself as a guy who writes a work of such importance that it changes the world yeah. it's so pretentious as to be gobsmacking yes. in this version of Godzilla the mayor and the mayor uh, assistant mayor is, represents yeah. Ebert, uh, Siskel and Ebert the late lamented film critics from you know, at yeah. the movies uh, because they'd never given him a positive review. Yeah. And throughout the movie, they're shown giving thumbs up and thumbs down. And yeah. it's this big blowing a raspberry. You, yeah. you give me bad reviews, but my movies make money. Yeah. You're right that your movies make money. Yeah. But you're, uh, they're also right that your movies are terrible. Yeah. And the fact that you're making fun of these 
guys yeah. in the midst of your worst movie yeah. is so, like, it just it's makes me want to tear a handful of hairs out of my head. It's very lowbrow. All right, here we go. Filmmakers, future filmmakers, if you're listening to this podcast, and I'd like to at least think there's at least one or two, if you're going to make a movie, don't ever, 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 ever do this and write one of your characters as a film critic that's like a buffoon or an idiot or dies a horrible death. Because you know what that does? It makes you look insecure and childish. You're not being clever. You're not being smart. You're not, you know, this is, you know, you know sneaky. You're just, it's kind of, it's a lame dick move. Embrace who you are. If Embrace he was doing it, it in a way, admitting yeah. this movie is stupid and ha ha ha, yeah. I might have laughed with him at least. I would have yeah. still thought it was dumb, but I could yeah. have laughed with him. Yeah. But no, this was him waving a big fucking middle finger yeah. saying, fuck you guys. Yeah. I'm a brilliant filmmaker and the box office re- reflects that. Yeah. Uh, it's a dick move. It's a dick move. It's and a it dick move. It makes me like them less than yeah. its present. No, thing. don't do it. Don't do it. M. Night Shyamalan Ding Dong did it in Lady in the Water. There's been other filmmakers that have done it. Don't you do know, it. Don't do it. It's it's a lame dick move, and that's sort of the icing on the cake with this movie in a lot of ways. It's funny how much we've been able to talk about Godzilla without actually talking about the movie at all. <laughs> <laughs> There's a plot to this. Here's something else. I've never understood the popularity of the Godzilla movies. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, they're really just sequences of a man in a green outfit up until probably this movie when Godzilla was rendered CGI, crushing miniature sets with cutaway shots of Japanese actors going, I don't know. I think I get it. I mean, I mean, obviously the special effects standards were different in the the 50s and 60s than they are now. Yeah. And obviously they don't impress as much. I did a not very favorable review of Godzilla versus King Kong in my versus episode, so... Mm -hmm. I understand. <laughs> like yeah. they, they have a kitsch quality to them, I know. Yeah. But I think I understand the appeal of Godzilla, at least on that side of the ocean, mm-hmm. as, you know, the classic Hollywood monsters were sort of overtaken by fears of the atomic age, and yeah. giant ants and yeah. giant monsters and atomic whatever, mm-hmm. fears from outer space. And on the other side of the ocean, it was Godzilla. Yeah. Nuclear disaster and devastation created this monster that crawled mm-hmm. out of the ocean and created more devastation. <coughs> yeah. Devastation created from devastation. I, yeah. I, I understand that working as a conceit. And I can't help but think that Hollywood producers on this side of the ocean, when they caught wind of Godzilla, were like yeah. slapping their foreheads saying, of course, a giant lizard. What the fuck have we been doing this whole time? Yeah, 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 yeah. So do I get the base appeal of a giant lizard laying waste to a major city? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I I do mm. and I don't think it would be necessarily as challenging even as like a King Kong thing to yeah. do a very basic C plus special effects spectacle yeah. giant lizard versus New York yeah but this movie thinks it's funny yeah oh. <laughs> this movie thinks it's like got the, the momentum and the sort of energy of yeah. like a uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark or yeah. or some real popcorn extravaganza that just is utterly handling the audience and yeah. it's generally misjudging where the audience is almost yeah. every step of the way. Yeah. Characters uh, we're supposed to like, we don't. Characters yeah. we're supposed to not like, we do. <laughs> like yeah. it's it, like it, it, the whole movie is dyslexic. And I say that as a dyslexic person, so no offense. Yeah, yeah, and I think special mention has to go to to one poor actor and it's, it's sort of not her fault because it is also a poorly written character, but Poor Maria Patello in this movie. I'd never, at least, I'd never seen her before, and I don't think I've ever seen her ever again in anything. 
It must have been Jeez. exciting to think that you had a major role in and this a big, big project, yeah. And and wow, like it's it's just how the character's written, how she speaks. She doesn't really do anything to sort of forward the you know what little story there is. And do you think that perhaps the broken relationship between her and Matthew Broderick will be mended through this adventure? Maybe. Maybe Lee. Just, just fucking maybe. maybe. Oh yeah. No, she's just wow. And she takes up so much screen time. That that was just just a poor choice. Characters and actors are like Hank Azaria. I yep. like you. You're a good actor. And yep. You have quite a bit of charisma in the movie. Yeah. What are you doing in the movie? Yeah. What is your purpose of your character? Jean Renault, I will always love you from the professional. professional. What are you doing in this movie? Drinking American coffee and going bleh. You know, you know what? It, it was it was nice to see genre favorites uh, Clyde Kustu uh, and George Chung and Al Long. Al Long, if you people know, uh, was a huge Asian stuntman from the eighties. All those guys showed up in Big Trouble in Little China. Right. Anyways, but uh, Al Leong was the guy who tortured Mel Gibson and Lethal Weapon. Right. He's that guy. And. Everyone should get a chance to torture Mel Gibson, in my humble opinion. But hey, we'll save that for another day. So it was neat to see them at the beginning of the movie when Godzilla attacks this boat. Even the look of the film is just so very dated now. It's all very CGI'd, you know, very, you know, circa 90s. So, so the look of the film, I, I, I don't quite enjoy. Do you remember the soundtrack when this came out? It was a big deal at the time, wasn't it? Yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, it's got Puff Daddy and... I was always waiting for that trailer for the fucking monster to eat Puff Daddy, and it never came. It was just like one giant cock tease. Um, well, and that's the thing we're talking about. Like, here's some people who are in the movie, and yeah. here's the soundtrack. Here are all the things they tried to make this movie sellable. Yeah. Uh, I honestly, I don't even like the new nouveau design of Godzilla. Yeah, yeah, and they changed it, and that was one of the, the criticisms. There's as well. something muppety about his face that takes yeah. away the scare. Yeah, and when they go to the point of him laying all the eggs and like they're being raptor Godzillas. Yeah, let's let's get to that too. Do you remember? Yeah, you always remember the advertising to that. Do you remember? The, do, you, yeah, do, you, do you remember the first teaser for Godzilla and what was it was the doing? Fishing the guys fishing. No, and... no, that was more when it was closer. The first one was that sort of little slap in the face to Jurassic Park because at this point Jurassic Park had been out for a while and they had that teaser where that teacher took the, that class to the museum right. and they're talking about the T Rex and how powerful and dangerous it is and well, obviously it's sort of referencing and also you hear that familiar boom and Godzilla's foot comes crashing in and crushing the you know the skeleton again the fucking arrogance of that that was kind of a big fuck you to Jurassic Park and then you know they made Godzilla and it was just sort of not as good it's like the, the how to do it and how not to. Yeah. Like, that's, we're going to make a movie better than Jurassic Park and no. fuck Jurassic Park, no. Yeah. I, I like the way the Jurassic then World then, had yeah. one of their dinosaurs eat Jaws at yeah. the beginning of the movie. Yeah. And, like, you, you know, you saw that or you didn't. Yeah. But it was a wink. But it wasn't a, we're better than Jurassic, Jurassic Park. Yeah. Or we're better than Jaws. Yeah. Fuck you, man. Yeah. <laughs> You're not. Yeah, no. And then they had the audacity to steal the whole raptor thing. Let's make baby raptor Godzillas because that's what Jurassic Park did. And some of the shots are almost shot for, for shot. Like, it's yeah. embarrassing. So, you know what? Fuck you, Roland Emmerich, <laughs> is kind of what it's at. A lot of the times, like I've said, uh, if you go to the rankandreview.ca, the mantra for the page is like, yeah. I don't want to be about hate. I don't yeah. I don't think it's necessarily interesting to listen to people yell at a movie yeah. for 15, 20 minutes. But yeah. I cannot think of 
anything fucking positive to say about this movie. I don't think the special effects are that great. There's actors I like who are not good in the movie. And that's... I think Matthew Broderick actively sucks in the movie. And, I know. Uh, he's not a bad actor, yeah. but and he's an unbelievably likable presence in yeah. movies. I fucking hated him in this movie, and that's never happened with me and Matthew Broderick. There's so many like wrong since. choices with this movie, and it's amazing. It's yeah. almost a study on how like it's, how not to make a yeah. movie. Like, yeah, and if you're gonna try and insult a beard, you you better bring the goods. Otherwise, you're gonna fall flat on your face. It also needs to be cut by a good thirty minutes. Like honestly, you really don't need the Madison Square sequence. There's there's one or two false endings with this movie, and then because like just right when they've blown up Madison Square Gardens, even though it was pretty much destroyed to begin with, and all of a sudden Godzilla pops up again. At that point, you're like, oh, you're you're exhausted at that point. It's Uvi Bowl level yeah. bad. Yeah, yeah. And I will give more credit to Uvi Bowl. You know why? why? Because with this budget, he could make twenty films. Yeah, <laughs> they'll all be shitty. But he could make 20 films with the same budget of this one disaster piece. Yeah. It's not so bad it's good. Mm-hmm. It's not even fun as a sound-off movie. Yeah. It's not funny. It's not thrilling. It's too long. It's long. Yeah. I, like... I, I, I failed my own experiment about trying to find something nice to say. Movies are hard to make. Special effects movies are yeah, hard to make. Yeah, Michael Lerner so sorry, man. But, like, even, like, Harry Shearer and, and Kevin Dunn. I don't care... I, and and that's sad. I mean, that's. I mean, it was a Godzilla movie, and chances were that it wasn't going to be amazing. But yeah. I'm actually shocked at just how awful it is. Yeah, I think that the greatest favor it did to the nouveau Godzilla, which I don't think is any great shakes of its own self, is that yeah. it set the bar shockingly low mm-hmm. for Godzilla. I agree. I think that Godzilla versus King Kong as kindergarten and ridiculous and dumb as it was mm-hmm. is twice the movie yeah. that this Godzilla is so, so tell me how you really feel Larry. I, I, I like again like I wish I could say but this performance makes it worthwhile or the special effects are worthy of attention or yeah. you know I think that the trailer for the movie with the old guy fishing is like the most complimentary thing I could say it was an amusing trailer mm-hmm it made it look like that could be a fun movie. Yeah. But watch the trailer. Avoid the movie at all costs. Yeah. Yeah. Han du tyckte om mig ändå? Okay, um, this is a Swedish film called Let the Right One In. It's based off of a novel and um, it concerns a little boy who is tormented and bullied by uh, the kids in his neighborhood and at school mm-hmm. and who lives a very solitary, fairly somber life. In fact, you kind of get the feeling like this he's on a, a pretty spooky precipice because yeah. he could be turning really sour. He could be breaking bad here. <laughs> he yeah. Could, he could be actually being made into some kind of a sociopath. Yeah, actually. But happily, 
or not happily, depending happily. on how you choose to interpret it. He meets a mysterious girl who moves in next door, who doesn't seem to be affected by the cold, who seems to have strength beyond any 12-year-old girls, and who manages to instill in him a sense of self-worth and uh, inspires him to sort of defend himself and, and find his own sort of strength. Mm -hmm. This is good for him, but catastrophic for everyone around him. Yeah. Such are the events told in Let the Right One In. What do you think? I uh, now I had seen this one before, and um, I really, really did enjoy this film. Uh, it's a, it's not your necessarily super fast moving movie, um, but what I liked is that it takes its time in the storytelling, and the characters are given their full birth of being able to sort of express themselves. You meet Oscar and. You get the sense that his mom is busy. I mean, she's a mom, but it's always like a, you know, kind of, Oscar, stop being, uh, I have a busy life somewhere else. She's like licking her own wounds so extensively mm -hmm. that she's sort of, maybe not, ignoring her son might be pushing it, but yeah. she's not paying as much attention to him as she could. Yeah. And I don't think recognizing the hurt that he is suffering. That he is going through. Yeah. And you can see that later, just a little later on the film, he, he has a father, um, and his father has moved on in his own way. Yeah. Um, and he loves his father. Like, it's, it's beautifully expressed. Like, I just, like, one of the moments when you see him with his dad and just, like, hanging out, and then, uh, and then you're finding out that he's moving on in his own way, and, and that Oscar doesn't really have a place in his life so anymore. much anymore. And so... Oscar needs to be needed by someone. Yeah, he really does. And he just... And right from the get-go, you know that something's up. Like, the, like he's been bullied for like quite some time. I think that it's interesting that they portray the bullying at school in such a frank and, frankly, real way. Speaking yeah. of somebody who was bullied when I was a kid, I, I do feel like it's sugar-coated. I do feel like it's they push the kid down, they say something funny, and they leave. But... In reality, it gets really ugly. It gets you know? nasty. And they throw his clothes in the urinal and, and piss on him and make him walk home in it. Yeah. You know, they, they humiliate him and they do as much psychological as well as physical damage as they can on him. And they do it with glee. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, it's disturbing. Yeah. Because I recognize it as truthful. <laughs> yeah. I have seen that side to children, and uh, it's very rare that a movie captures that. It's as horrifying as when we get into the supernatural stuff, some of the bullies in it. Yeah. Um, this is a film in which children are killed, and mm -hmm. I'm kind of indifferent about some of <laughs> when it. By the time it happens, I mean, it's not that I want any of these kids dead, but they have established themselves as such villains <laughs> that uh, I don't necessarily pity them either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, like the, thing, uh, the thing of the matter is is that it, with all bullying, if taken too far, the other side of the story is, is that the victim gets killed, right? Or the victim becomes corrupted. Right. Right, the cycle of violence. The only way to not feel like a victim is to... Like they'll always say, just go stand up to that bully. Go punch that bully in the nose. Break his nose. And then your bullying problems will be over. No, because the nature of bullies is that they're cowards. So yeah. it's going to be six of them against you by yourself. That scenario is not going to play out. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and even, like, I mean, there was a point, if you don't mind if I sort of jumping around at points in the film. 
uh, he does actually stand up to the bullies. Like, uh, and it's horrifying. And it's, it's really bad because it just escalates. And just then that sort of cowardice nature, it's like, oh, yeah, you, you, you hit me. I'm going to go get my scary big brother who has yeah. got less compassion than I do. And you see where that bully came from in that respect. The biggest bully that Oscar suffers, he himself has a bully in his older brother that he lives in terror of. Yeah. And in a way, he gets his power from torturing Oscar because his own power has been stolen by his brother. Um, Like I said, all of this is very realistically handled, and the Oscar is stabbing a tree viciously with a knife. Right at the beginning. Right at the beginning of the movie, pretending it's his bully, you know, trying to like vent, vent, vent. Yeah. And this girl sees him and recognizes something in him. Yeah. I think one of the most fascinating things about this movie is considering the motivations of this young vampire. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, and, and it's not really named how old she is, but I get the she sense... She says she's 12, but she's been 12 for a really, really long, long time. time. And I, the feeling I also get is that she has gone through generations of keepers. And this is the beginning of her next. Of yeah. her next keeper. And so that, was, that in itself is a really open-ended sort of story that never quite gets answered, but just left to your imagination. It's a rescue and a reprieve from this horrible life of powerlessness that he's suffering that she offers him. Yeah. And she never offers it to him. She never says, this is what you're going to do. But she sets the path for him. Yeah. Her watcher, the guy who's been looking after her, is getting old and sloppy in his work. Yeah. And it's time to replace him. And I think the interesting thing is, is that that will be Oscar's fate, presumably. One day, Oscar will get too old to do the job efficiently, and she will befriend some other sad little boy, and the whole cycle will begin again. And And when looked at through that prism, is it a happy ending to this movie? (laughs) It's what Oscar wants. And it maybe is better than Oscar growing up to become a little sociopath. Yeah. But is it a happy ending? Uh, I would say in the interim, in the immediate moment, it is a happy ending. Mm -hmm. Happy ending. Because <laughs> yes. uh, I mean, I, I'm also thinking about what happens immediately after. Um, There's uh, a lot of innocent <clears throat> blood that is spilled in the left and right of this too. It's not just the bullies and the bad guys who die. No, she needs to feed fairly regularly, and people who are in the wrong place at the wrong time are victims. Yeah, the and townies. People, I call that group the townies. The townies and people who mean to do good. A police investigator who's trying to, you know, solve the crimes, or someone who's wanting to figure out what yeah. happened to a loved one. They get too nosy. They get close, too close to this fire, and they become. Another victim in this web. Yeah. What's... All the same, we still like this little vampire for some reason. <laughs> for some reason, she's kind of adorable. Um, <laughs> in, and, but but utterly terrifying. Like, she ends up, like, accidentally making vampires because she had to flee. And yeah. one of the townies is a victim of that. Yeah. And I liked how that sort of... There was just some very interesting dynamics right there. And for a movie that is so sedate and reserved, like you said, which does take its time, when the violence comes, it is shockingly real. Are are we referring to the very end? Well, there's the ending, but I'm just talking... We've seen, say, for instance, a vampire get struck by sunlight and 
burst into, into flames. flames which but we've never seen someone who's strapped into a hospital bed. Yeah. And the nurse opens the <laughs> curtains <laughs> and, and just a, she erupts in flames and starts flailing around. And the nurse also, just for being next to her, is also <laughs> engulfed in flames like a... Uh, or, or the interesting new addition of cats somehow being able to uh, yeah. uh, tell that you're a vampire and attacking. And it was like the cats were like, this is a enemy predator. And we have to kill it. Even at the cost of our own lives, this thing needs to die. This thing needs to die. Kill it a lot. There's a really brutal sequence where this woman's being attacked by a cat. Oh, the- yeah. <laughs> and the cats are freaking out. And they've latched into her flesh. And they're, like, clawing and biting her. And not, like, gently either. And in a movie, like I say, that has been fairly gentle and, and sedate otherwise, it really jars you in your seat. And like, oh, my goodness. Yeah. There, there's, a, there's kind of hints as to what kind of creature... That um, that Ellie is because there's a point where she's in a room with Oscar and the light comes on suddenly and her eyes, um, her pupils were dilated, were kind of cat-like. Just squinted slightly. Yeah, and then it just went back to normal and I was like, hmm. I think one of the <clears throat> more powerful scenes to me too is a little trust game that is played between these two kids. Mm-hmm. Again, if you can call her a kid. Um, where he tests this sort of, you're a vampire, okay, well, prove it. You say you can't come in unless I invite you. And that was an interesting piece of mythology that's never really been explored before. It's a real definite thing about vampires. It's in the vampire mythology, absolutely. But in movies, we don't see it that often. No. And she passes the threshold of his door and stands her ground and just starts shaking and trembling and just bleeding out of every orifice. Every orifice. And she stands her ground until he says, you're invited in, you're invited in. It's a trust game. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, <laughs> it's a really interesting scene because for a moment she does put her life entirely in his hands, probably for the first and only moment in her existence. But... That is possible. I don't think that that's happened before. There must be some, you know, just as a thought, Larry, maybe the reason that she trusted him is because she maybe sensed the inner monster in Oscar. Mm-hmm. And so she's like, you're a kindred spirit. And, uh, and he'll be happy with her is the thing. He'll be doing horrible things and at the end of the day become a mass murderer to feed this love. And it's a love that can never really be fully... That darkness will never be filled. Yeah, well, and, and the fact that she will always be 12. And, yeah. and, and he'll be 12... Until his next birthday. Yeah. You know? And that's going to become a thing. And that, that's, that's... You know, like, but he'll always love her and think of her in the same way, much like her previous keeper, mm-hmm. even to the point of scalding his flesh, flesh with acid to slow the police investigation to get her time to yeah. get out of there. Yeah. And when she comes to see him in the hospital, willingly offering his throat to her. Yeah. Like, uh, <laughs> it's a powerful bond that she has with him, but does that bond go both ways? Like, yeah. The way she drops him out of that window seems not necessarily loving, does it? Like, no, it doesn't. It just seems like she like... discarded him and she's on to the next. Yeah, so there's, there's something... There's a fine edge to this movie. <laughs> yeah. it, it, it's, it's a little disturbing. Uh, is it alright if I talk about um, the very... The, the point where it hits gear 7 and, and yeah. just goes crazy? Okay, um, just talking about that fine line... Um, Oscar is right at the end and the, the bullies have shown up. And, spoiler alert! Yeah. <laughs> Spoilers! I'm going to be talking about this uh, this particular end scene and it is one of the best and scariest scenes I've seen done. Because what happens is when 
um, the big older brother bully comes up and he's basically saying, I'm going to hold you underwater and if you don't do it, I'm going to gut you. Yeah. And if you do it, I'll only cut you a little bit. And it's something unreasonable, like five minutes or something? Yeah, I think it was like three minutes, but three no, minutes. nobody can really... Like, Oscar was not in... He's not a physically in-shape kid. Yeah. So He was going to drown Oscar. He was, yeah, he's basically going to drown Oscar, and if Oscar tried to surface, he would cut him with his switchblade. Um, and it had been established earlier that Ellie um, watches Oscar... Uh, while he does his swimming. And so you see the beautiful scene, and well, not beautiful scene, sorry. You stay with Oscar's perspective, which yeah. is what's interesting about Yeah, it. It, and he's underwater, and you see him in the pool, and you see the fist of the bully brother holding him under, and and you have the sound of what how you would hear things underwater. All muffled, yeah. All muffled, and then... You hear glass breaks, glass breaks, Screaming. and then a scream. Yeah. But it's muffled; it's all through the water. And then all of a sudden, an arm, boosh, go through. And then the feet dropping yeah. in the water and kicking as they're being dragged across the surface of the water. On the surface of the water, and just more screaming. And then boosh, the head going in the water. Yeah. And then the crunch. And then the suddenly the bully's arm drifts by. Yeah. And Oscar surfaces, and everything is silent, and all of his bullies are dead. <laughs> dead and dismembered. But the, but the scary and monstrous thing, like referring back to, you know, having after she had dispatched her keeper, is she's looking at Oscar with the same sweet but completely blood-spattered face yeah. of like, you're mine now. Yeah. You're okay, you're safe, no worries. no worries. I just brutally killed these people, that's what happened. That's yes. it. This is how we do things. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, uh, at that point, she was protecting him and saying mm-hmm. that she would always protect him. Yeah. Uh, and all he had to do was return the favor. Yeah. And he didn't have anyone protecting him, so he kind of had to say yes. He kind of had to say yes. But it was sort of... There was a point, like, also back in the film when, when Oscar had pretty much given... Where she had said, um, I can't give you... Uh, he's like, do I have a chance with you? I'm like, I cannot reciprocate. And he's like, okay, I can, I'm okay with that. And he's like, okay, you have a chance with me. Basically, because you are willing to be 100% like not um, putting any sort of expectation on me. Yeah, yeah. And because of that, then you have the shot. But wow. I think this movie is pretty strong. I think it's pretty powerful. They remade it recently to a film called Let Me In. I never saw with, the uh, American Chloe version. Grace Moretz. It's directed by uh, Matt Revis, the same guy who did Cloverfield. Okay. I think it's decent, but I don't think there was much to be fixed in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that, like, if you really have that much of a problem while reading subtitles, I guess, watch the remake. It, it does the story justice. But I think this is the better of the two films. And I yeah. think in its own way, it's kind of a masterpiece. It is amazing. One thing I would recommend, don't watch the watch the, the subtitles. Don't watch the voice dubbing. Agreed. Because it, it abs- something about Plato and the shadow of the shadow of the shadow, it just completely diminishes... The, the the interpretation of the film and the characters. Yeah, we talked about that in <laughs> subtitle scares. I'm a big believer in subtitles. Oh heck yes. Absolutely. <laughs> Watch the subtitles. Listen to the authentic voice of the actors. It's amazing. Yeah. And definitely do so for watching this right now. A web of mystery. Jonesy? Yeah, you be careful. Careful of what? A pattern 
fear. And where are they all going? It's not where they're going that worries me. It's what are they running away from? Form the design of an alien invasion. I've quarantined the entire area. Nothing leaves alive. I'll tell you what you should be worried about. Our hitchhiker. That's been our greatest fear. Somebody who could pass for one of us. You're not Jonesy. These are Americans. The idea of slaughtering Americans just turns my stomach. This is a weird one for me. I can think of only one other movie that has this many people in it that I like that is as terrible <laughs> as Dreamcatcher. Okay? First of all, let me throw some names at you. Okay? Lawrence Kasdan. I expected the big chill. I'm so excited Body when I saw his name. Right? Uh, you know, he wrote Raiders of the Lost Fucking Ark. He's not guaranteed quality, but Lawrence Kasdan to me, pretty safe fucking bet, right? Screenplay, William Goldman. Yes. William Goldman adapted Misery. Mm-hmm. William Goldman adapted Stand By Me. Yes. These are two of the finest adaptations of Stephen King's writing, yes. period. William Goldman wrote The Princess Fucking Bride. Yes. Now let me move off to the cast. <laughs> Has anybody heard of Morgan Freeman? Who's Morgan that? Morgan Freeman, yeah, he's a pretty popular actor these days. At the time this was made, the no-name in the cast was Damian Lewis. He's huge now, thanks to... Or uh, Thomas Jane, the, the, those two, yeah. yeah but Damian Lewis was a known... Yeah. He was basically a no-name actor yeah. at the time. I think a few people knew Thomas Jane, but like Damian Lewis was just a blind guy. I think ba- Band of Brothers had come out just before that, so yeah. there's some buzz about him. But, but yeah. Uh, and it's funny he uses a British accent when he's playing the evil alien. But we'll get into the, <laughs> we'll get into the unbelievably stupid plot in a few minutes here. I'm just going to go on to this list. Of you can names. describe this plot, can you? Yeah. Well, I will try. <laughs> Thomas Jane, Damian Lewis, Timothy Oliphant, Tom Sizemore, Donnie Wahlberg, Jason Lee. <laughs> yes. Uh, it, it, it's ridiculously stacked with actors that I like. I remember reading the novel of Dreamcatcher, mm-hmm. and I remember even thinking as I read it, this is not Stephen King's best work. No. But I bet you it'll make an interesting movie. And holy shit, was I wrong about that. Because despite this collection of talented people, this movie is a straight-up debacle. <laughs> <laughs> I think... A laughable it, at points. It, I mean, it comes yeah. close to just an out-and-out catastrophe. <laughs> The only movie I can compare to it as far as level of talent to level of disappointment is Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Oh, okay. In which Kenneth Branagh, Francis Ford Coppola, Frank Darabont, Robert De Niro got together to just take a huge shit on film audiences (laughs) everywhere. So, (laughs) I am not mincing words in Dreamcatcher. I am not a fucking fan of this movie, and I want it to be. I want it. I like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein a lot more than this. (laughs) <laughs> uh, now, uh, okay, starting with the book again because that seems to be what we're we've been doing. Yeah, uh, this was the book he wrote right after his accident. The As I understand book. it, he was in his hospital bed. He was recovering. He wrote it by by hand, like by he, hand in candlelight. In, in candlelight, so it's the most painful. He was in pain. It's a painful way to write. Yeah. Um, and it is a very angry, angry novel. Um, and it, it has some good stuff in it, but then it, it goes really wrong early. And so as I read it, I I thought, no, I, I don't think this is going to be a good movie because they're always 
a notch worse. Right. And I don't like this book. And so if they make it, it's going to be worse. But then I started seeing the coming attractions and the teasers. And then I saw the names as you have just described. <laughs> like, like Lawrence Kasdan. Okay, maybe Lawrence Kasdan <laughs> can make something of this. Yeah. And William Goldman can make something of this. And, and then I was confused why Morgan Freeman was in it. And I was trying to figure out which role he had. And then when, when we I saw it, then it was like, oh, okay. That sort of makes sense. I mean, uh, the entire time I'm thinking of Robert Duvall uh, yeah. in Apocalypse Now when I was reading the book. and Yeah, the movie is um, similar to the book. Everything seems fine until we get to um, the cabin. And we get into the cabin about 20 minutes or so into the movie. Yeah. So I, I like these scenes where they're introducing all these characters and their lives, which is, again, in a lot of Stephen King material and the childhood business. Yeah. This one was one where I thought he everything was thrown in and then some stuff were added. Yeah. Uh, I And... I don't know if you want to describe all of the elements of this thing or, or not, but we, we, we have uh, <laughs> telepathic children. We have a, uh, um, a special needs uh, boy who uh, um, has sort of these powers, and, um, and then uh, there's always, as always, these bullies that are, when this, this kid's discovered, they're unbelievably horrible. And then we see this kind of a, a version of the Losers Club come and save Absolutely. save this kid, and then they all become friends, and they have this tight psychic bond. Basically, that's then, what I was going to say. So that, it's that, it that's again. okay. It again, um, and then there's a cabin. Cabins are always great yeah. locations, um, but then there's all of this gross-out humor that starts to happen, and then this creature comes. Kind of from a bowel move, movement. The shit weasel, I believe. Yes, that's what. That's yes. Um, and then that leads to aliens, and leads to uh, once again government agencies that seem like they're, and uh, somehow, somehow some of these characters can be inhabited by the alien and then still be alive and be in their brains trying to hide. <laughs> It, you're having pieces of. I can I, feel you floundering. It's yes. not your fault. It's not. Your it's fault. just a. It's, it's just a way, way, way too much. It's a mess. Yes, a group of kids have a shared experience in Derry, the same town of yeah. it. Yeah. Actually, in the book, as they drive past the standpipe mm-hmm. in Derry, they see graffiti that states "Anywise lives." Yes, I remember that. That's um, so cool. So yeah. But basically, that group bond between these five guys is very much the Losers Club yeah. in a much less interesting way. They get to keep their powers throughout their adulthood. Yeah. They're all a little bit psychic. They can communicate to each other. They can predict when something maybe good or maybe bad is going to happen. And they're all vibing really hard, and they're all thinking about their friend Duddits. Mm-hmm. <sighs> okay, well, here's the thing. Um, the Duddits character is the thing that the most pisses me off. About oh, both the book and about the movie, mm-hmm. but maybe a little bit more because I've recently uh, my my son was recently diagnosed as uh, autistic, mm-hmm. relatively late in his childhood, later than you would anticipate. So maybe a trigger for me. Mm-hmm. I will put that out there. But I am so sick of autism being treated as a superpower. Yeah, and 
that's the way it's treated in the book. And Stephen King has done that in other books too. The Regulators comes to mind. Yes. And, and in Rose Red and yep. a few other places. The autistic as psychic or superhero, he goes to that well way more than I am comfortable with. But the movie makes it so much more offensive. It's terrible. Because Duddits is not just autistic in the movie. He's a fucking alien. I think I might have been able to sit back and tell you, this movie is so insane that you should watch it because this many talented people produced something so insane. But that last twist, twist when we see Marky Mark... Oh, well, no, 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 Wahlberg. Donnie Wahlberg. Donnie Wahlberg. Yeah, yeah. When we see yeah. Donnie Mal Wahlberg morph into an alien and Duddits has suddenly been an alien the whole time, that is unbefucking forgivable. That is terrible. And Lawrence Kasdan should have known it. And William Goldman should There's have known it. There's a lot that. of intelligent people <laughs> behind this. Yeah. And they, they, this movie, of the ones we are reviewing, this is not 1983, where people are just not understanding. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it, it's so offensive, and I, I think the performance is terribly offensive, too. And, like, the, the service he plays with the plot, I would have put past it. But the fact that he's actually not of this fucking world for some reason, when I rewatched it for the podcast, slapped me in the mm -hmm. face. I was like, this was incompetent and this was disappointing. Now it's actually making me mad. Yeah. <laughs> you know? the, the only thing I can think, and this is me, maybe I'm being very, very kind to Stephen King and everybody involved. The only thing I'm thinking, and this doesn't make any less offensive, is that this is the savior for the world, the only power they have to battle these these mm -hmm. evil aliens, but it's not enough, like the characterization, the writing it's it's so, so bad That isn't an alien in the book too, I want to make that clear. Oh yeah, that's right, he, he isn't in the cancer. book but, but yeah. he dies from cancer yeah. before the end of the book is what I recall Yeah uh, So, But, uh, but he, he had special not, powers yeah. in the book he, In the movie, yeah, he becomes this Kind of, but he knows still... about Mr. Gray since he's a little kid. He's warning them that this is going to happen 30 years later when they're 12. Another one of the reasons, and I'll get away from the Duddits thing, because obviously it's a, it's a sensitive issue. There's a lot them. of other stuff to but criticize in this stuff. besides that, but that is that is a big one. They spent a lot of time and a lot of money making sure they got an A-list cast to play the adults. Mm -hmm. And I think that they might have dropped the ball on the kids. Because I think we might have cared more if the scenes with the kids were more credible. And they're not. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In the movie version we saw of the It, which had half the budget and probably access to a lot less people, mm -hmm. you know, if it's the Lawrence Kasdan casting the movie, uniformly the kids were more convincing. Well, if they had taken the money for the special effects and the over-the-top third act, then put that into... I also just can't... It's, it's more in the... There's more about the kids in the yeah. book, too. Quite yeah. a bit more. It will make us like them, so that as their adult versions are dying, we feel it. Whereas... Timothy Oliphant character died. Whatever you, know? you feel sorry for him because he's not very good with women, I'm which was glad, kind of strange. I'm glad Jason Lee's character died because he had the worst dialogue of the whole fucking movie. Now some of that is Stephen, Stephen King, King dialogue. Yeah, they did take that out of the book. I've talked about it in the previous review. You know, sometimes being loyal to Stephen King hurts you. You can autocorrect for that in your head, and he's just a guy who talks like an idiot in your head. Actually hearing poor Jason Lee trying to say all these terrible lines... He doesn't deliver them well, but, I but mean, I'm not sure I don't how know he how could you have... do it. I don't know how you do it. This is a big old fuckero. 
Yeah, nobody talks like different this. day is not as cool as Stephen King seems to think it is. I mean, I like to think that maybe he was the influence of the meds that he was under as he was writing he the book. He could be, yeah. And, uh, you know, this is the first book he published since the accident. So Hollywood was like, welcome back, Stephen King. We're going to give you royalty treatment for this new book. Mm-hmm. And it didn't deserve it. The other thing, and we're already like 12 minutes into this review, but I cannot underserve just how gross this is. Not that I have a problem with Stephen King books being gross, but this weasel that gets uh, shot out of the sister horrifying and least not for the right reasons. Yeah. Jason Lee's character is sitting on the toilet and he's got this pacifying knee that he wants to chew on a toothpick. Oh, I was good talk. Yeah. It's the least credible scene, and this is both in the book and in the movie. And I know Stephen King personally is really crap proud of it. But he wants to pick up this toothpick so bad that he risks his life for a toothpick. I don't believe that, first of all, as a as an excuse, but Secondly, that whole bathroom reeks and is covered with blood and red, on the and red alien fungus. And you're going to lean over and you're going to pick a toothpick off of the ground to chew in your mouth because you can't wait for two minutes for your buddy Jonesy, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the gross-out stuff is definitely gross. Like, I mean, as Stephen King has said in the past, we tend to get all of our really bad news in the bathroom. So, so uh setting like I, I guess I understand the horror aspect of setting something that visceral there but it's cheap, it though. seems really cheap it, it seems is so gross and so B-movie that it should be in a trauma movie not a Lawrence Kasdan movie mm-hmm. right and when we're not even done there there's another scene later on after that where Timothy Oliphant's urinating in the snow and the creature erupts in the stream of urine that yeah, he's peeing and it's like they double down on it it's so off like well, it, it, yeah, it would be something like a, a cheap laugh for kids type of movie, but it's in this horror story. Um, the only thing I can, again, I feel like I'm defending this, yet I, I, I hate it, you know? <laughs> yeah. uh, I think what they're trying to establish with that toothpick business, even though it's totally illogical, yeah. is that this is, like, that, that, that character is so stressed all the time that he needs this, he needs to be uh, have a toothpick in his mouth, um, and we see that I think in the flashback as well. But we and then he's getting really really nervous having to sit on this toilet while this alien in or, or whatever it is we don't know it's an yeah. alien at that point. And, an and, and so he has to have it's an affectation he carries. He has to have it with them be like a cigarette for yeah. some people. It'd be like um, yeah. cracking I don't know cracking knuckles for other people. But he so desperately needs it at that moment. But it. It doesn't make any sense. No. Like, why? Why would you do that? Like, you. I mean, they don't have the situation under control at all. But that's the closest to that they have the situation under control. Now, yeah, and and uh, like Jason Lee's terrible in the movie, but uh, I know you're a bit more sympathetic to him than maybe I am. Thing is, is that most of them are terrible in the movie, dude. Like, good actors. Damien Lewis. I had, you know, this was. I I. I, I actually thought I spent a long time thinking that he is overrated and and this movie is one of the, the reasons because the moments when he's switching between himself and the alien with the British accent are they're so badly done it's, and his facial expressions are ridiculous and I get it the alien doesn't know how to act like a human being it's, it's unintentionally comic but 
I will give this to Damian Lewis. He's doing the best he can with some really bad material. Uh, I don't know how you would play that. Like reading that script, I, what am I? How, Be more subtle. Yeah. I mean, like as we were talking about Timothy Hutton, who had to play a dual role. Yeah. I mean, he and he had more license, I think, to be over the top than Damian Lewis, yeah. and he he f- found the right balance. Thomas Jane is interesting to me too because I don't think Thomas Jane sucks as a rule, but I think he kind of sucks in this movie. Uh, the first time we yeah. see him, uh, he has a blowout with uh, one of his clients, it's the psychiatrist, yeah. and then he attempts to take his life, and it's interrupted by a phone call. And right away, I just wasn't believing Thomas Jane. I, I, I don't think he's suicidal. Yeah, he's suicidal there, but it's almost like this... I, I don't know. I, I don't know why... There's no trace of that for the rest of the... Yeah. Um, it's also an interesting, I think, hiccup in the screenplay, and I might be wrong about this, but don't watch the movie to find out. Uh, yeah, because he puts the gun to his head and is about to commit suicide, but uh, the Damien Lewis character calls him and interrupts. Mm-hmm. He talks to him, makes plan to meet the Damien Lewis character, mm-hmm. and then before that can happen, he gets hit by a car. The Damien Lewis character has an accident that's gives him an injury incredibly similar to the injury that Stephen King himself was suffering as he wrote this. The interesting thing is is that when we jump ahead like six months to the camp, mm-hmm. there's a scene where he's walking to the cabin by himself, and he says, just yesterday I had a gun to my head and I would give anything to live an extra day. Well, according to the narrative of your movie, mm-hmm. it was, that was six months ago, yeah. or else he tried to kill himself again just yesterday. Either way, how fucking sloppy is that? Unless there's some deleted scene where he continued to be suicidal. I, I, I don't know. I continue to yeah. be amazed at how everything went wrong in this movie. Like, and again, maybe the, maybe there was no good movie to be made of Dreamcatcher. No. Maybe it was just the you know end result of too many meds and Stephen King and a lot of pain. But like, I am astounded at how bad it is. Morgan Freeman oh, is bad in this movie. He is. Morgan Freeman is never bad. I'm sorry, like, but yeah, he can be. He movie. does a lot of bad movies, yeah, but, he's but he's the best thing about them, them. Yes, right. But he, they tried to cast him against type, and I'm going to be this badass military extremist who, you know, always is going to go to the nuclear option first. And I did not believe him for a second. Tom Sizemore looks like he's half asleep for the whole movie. Well, and he was he coming was. back from some sort of a recovery? <laughs> yeah. Or this was the day and age where every movie Tom Sizemore was in, he got killed in. I think with the exception of The Relic, every movie he was in yeah. in the 90s, he died. <laughs> this was a toned down, though. I mean, he was not his... Uh, no, again, like... You know, violent, angry self. I mean, Everybody was happy for the paycheck, but once they read the script, I think everybody was pretty checked out. Well, I mean, if I'm, I'm putting... If I'm a young up-and-coming... Because a lot of them became successes on TV shows yeah. after this. And if I'm given the opportunity to work with Lawrence Kasdan and... Uh, yeah, no, and no. I mean... You know Stephen King, like every all these people involved. This no, will give me a lot of. As it I did, would, it gave them some exposure. And, I would have been in Dreamcatcher with a big smile on my face, but, but I'm still uh, just shocked because it led somehow to Homeland for yeah. Damian Lewis and uh, and and hung there for Thomas Jane. And so, yeah, I, Jason Lee was already established. I'm yeah. not sure he necessarily needed this in his life. But, but again. The guy who wrote Raiders of the Lost Ark is adapting the new yeah. Stephen King novel, and they want you. It felt like they were assembling these guys from the Big Chill, yeah, <laughs> or something. Like they, it, th- that part felt like Lawrence Kasdan, yeah. Um, but then the aliens and all of this other stuff. I mean, it, 
I'm going to put the blame here on King. Again, I've been a King fanboy mm -hmm. this whole time, but I think that Dreamcatcher just it was, was not going to work. It was uh, stillborn. And uh, if these guys can't make it work, I can't see anyone else fucking making it work. No, no, not at all. Getting a life. You want to fight me for her? Why on earth would you want to do that? Because I'm in love with her. Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Maybe next time we don't date the girl with 11 evil ex-boyfriends. Seven. Oh, that's not that bad. So Edgar Wright, as a director, as far as I'm concerned, has nothing to prove. I am super happy with Shaun of the Dead. Mm -hmm. I didn't like Hot Fuzz as much as everybody else, but I liked it. Mm -hmm. And I liked World's End, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it, it, here we are, Scott Pilgrim versus the world. An interesting product and sort of him finally getting his hands on a lot of money to make a real spectacle. Uh, you could tell that he was capable of the spectacle, and he did great things with the minimal budgets in the past. But now he's got he's got some he's got some green to play with, mm -hmm. and he uses it effectively. Mm -hmm. Scott Pilgrim versus the World is unarguably, I think, like a pretty visually impressive movie. Okay. How you take it in, or how how much these references mean to you, how deeply you are into the comic book, I will confess, I've never read one panel of e the Scott Pilgrim home. Right. This yeah. is my introduction to it, and apparently there are some major difficult, there are yes. differences yes. in, uh, in, in nerdverse, we'll say. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting, because the nerds seem to love Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Yeah. But much like Cowboys versus Aliens, financially this was a devastating hit. They poured a lot of money, and it, I don't know if people were just sick of seeing Michael Sarah, mm -hmm. or if it was because it was just released on the wrong date against some bad competition, but yeah. it floundered brutally in mm -hmm. the box office. And I am here to add to the voice of the choir of people to say, that is a shame, because it is an epic entertainment. I, <laughs> like, I love this movie, <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> Um, it's obviously the most different uh, genre of movie that we have of this list of movies. Mm -hmm. You'd be hard-pressed to call it a horror movie, but it is sort of fantastic. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Um, it's based on a graphic novel about a kid living in Toronto who was licking his wounds after a bad breakup and in a maybe not so smart relationship, an innocent relationship with a high school girl <laughs> with the yes. memorable name of Knives Chow. Yes, I love um, Knives. I just think she's a wonderful character. Then totally you do is. just fall in love with Knives. Oh, right? you totally do. Yeah. Um, and then he is also starts romancing this girl that he had a dream about with this bright purple hair. Yeah. He sees her and with the connection the dream feels he must pursue. Mm-hmm. But she comes with some pretty, pretty serious baggage. <laughs> she has a lot of baggage. <laughs> in the form of the seven evil exes. Yes. Which he must face. Yes. I mean, let, I'm going to let you finish, or let, at least I'm going to let you start. But okay. uh, I just want to say the first time I sat down to watch Scott Pilgrim versus the World, having no sort of background in the, the comic book or anything like that, I didn't really fully understand what it was I was sitting down to watch. Okay. And for the first almost 25 minutes, half an hour of the movie, 
you're looking at a sort of reminiscent of John Hughes, maybe Juno-esque okay, yeah. romantic comedy full of a lot of sort of quirky characters doing quirky, funny things, mm-hmm. familiar. Mm-hmm. And I remember settling into this, oh, this will be fine, this will be nice, I can watch this movie and yeah. sort of forget it as I watch it. Right. And then, all of a sudden, the movie all <laughs> just kicks into high gear. The first X shows up, and you are treated to this bizarre <laughs> dance spectacle fight yeah. scene. Yeah. And the movie just pulls out all the plugs, all the time floors, really and you realize you're watching something where everything is on the table, anything can happen at any moment, yeah. and will, yeah. and hang on, because it's going to be crazy. <laughs> and it is, and it's epically entertaining, and it's a hard thing to measure, and I don't think at any point, at any point, do they drop the ball. No. So, I think the cat's out of the bag, that I'm a big fan, yes. but I brought you to here to see what you think. <laughs> okay. So, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, much like... Cowboys and Aliens, yeah. huge bomb. Does it deserve it? Oh, God, no. Mm. I loved this movie. I was like a kid in a candy store when I was watching it. You know, my eyes get big, and I'm like sitting on the edge of my like sofa. And I love this movie. And I've watched it quite a few times, mm-hmm. I have to admit. And it's one of those movies that I don't mind watching over and over and over yeah. again. Like, the, the movie clips along pretty good. Um, so it's one of those things where you can watch over and over again and be like, oh, I didn't notice that. Mm. Or, and, and there's such... You know, there's those little details that I think that they put into the the plot line that uh, relates back to the comic books or whatever. That if you are a super fan, you're picking up on all these little things, and I think that really brings it out for you yeah. as well. Yeah. You really get the feeling like there was an uncompromised vision. Like I know that apparently in the original story, he mm-hmm. does end up with knives instead of. Okay. Well, knives actually, she's pretty. She's way more yeah. awesome. Um, so, but that's a fairly significant change that, that, that he is, doesn't end. It is. Well, at least it ends up ambiguous. He and Ramona are in an uncertain place, but they're walking a path together. Exactly. Uh, oh, yeah. right. And I think that's a more comfortable ending than him dating this high school girl. <laughs> yeah, He's inexplicably is. cool and has a heart as big as all outdoors. I know, right? <laughs> but she's her. still a high school kid, right? <laughs> it's true. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Um, Michael Sarah. Mm-hmm. I have to say, surprises me. Yeah. Because if anything about the lack of hype about the movie that lends some credibility is that I kind of get people get worn out on Michael Sarah because traditionally he has sort of played that same type. I'm awkward, mm-hmm. I'm embarrassed. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's unlike the English version of Hugh Grant. Oh, yeah. I'm so terribly <laughs> sorry. Oh, this is so awkward. Yes. Oh my, oh, 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 oh. Yeah. Yeah. He's not this. In in Scott Pilgrim the World, he's definitely a a hero. He he plays in a rock band. He's dating two girls at the same time. (laughs) Uh, You know, uh, he's like... And he he owns it pretty well. Like, for this lanky, skinny, nerdy-looking kid, like, all of a sudden you you believe that he would have two girlfriends. (laughs) You know? Well, he's kind of a hero that you... You know, in some ways you kind of don't like because of those qualities, I think. You know, you want... You know, he's awesome at playing the guitar he's got all these great qualities but at the same time he is flawed and you mm. kind of think you know you kind of acting like a jerk right now yeah but he's like <laughs> it's this weird dude thing i don't know what yeah. it is the same thing with high fidelity and john okay, cusack yeah, yeah. that character ostensibly huge prick yeah. but we like him i know um 
for I don't know. I, I, I don't have any answers for you, yeah, but I'm no. just there. I guess if you I'm fit into that niche, if you're that type of cool guy, you can get away with being <laughs> yeah, an asshole. This is what we just like poked a hole in the fabric of existence <laughs> here. But if you're cool enough, you can get away with yeah. being an asshole. That's right. <laughs> Apparently, yeah. Um, I also want to say um, Winstead. What is it? Uh, Mary Elizabeth Minstead. That's why I couldn't remember her name, because she's got two of them. She plays Ramona. Oh, yes. Um, I really like her here. Like, um, I definitely get the appeal of her. Mm-hmm. Um, I might not fully understand, you know, after the third or fourth ex shows up. Why, well, is he still fighting? <laughs> yeah. Like, I, guess, I think it's the dream. The fact I, that he well, actually yeah, he saw has her, that connection. He saw her dream. in a dream, so yeah. he feels like he's got to be committed to all the way. But exactly. his fights get increasingly brutal. <laughs> and uh, a surprisingly good turn in turn, i got to again shout out for the Canadian content. Mm-hmm. Brandon Rouse. Uh, he's had a, sort of a rocky path. Uh, I think he's been successful. He's constantly working, but you know his Superman movie didn't do particularly well. And... Uh, mm-hmm. You know, a couple of the films that he's led have not done well, but I really liked him as the super powerful vegan. Because vegans are so good that they can't be punched because they're just better than the rest everyone of else. I love that. It's it's priceless. It's yeah, it's so great. Strangely strong performance. Like it's <laughs> like the character is really one dimensional and smug, but yeah. it's it's played well. Oh, totally, totally. Yeah. And the same will be said, I would say, for Chris Evans or Captain mm-hmm. America, mm-hmm. this is movie star who's really yeah. in love with himself. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I but, love all the exes. They're awesome. Yeah, yeah. Like, like I would be hard pressed to pick a favorite. Like, and there's seven. Yeah, I know. I mean the. Jason Schwartzman's sort of the big yeah, bad, yeah. and like I guess that would be the default if you had to pick one. But yeah. they're all great. <laughs> yeah, I, I I do have a least favorite ex. Okay, and it would be um, Matthew Patel. Oh yeah, the first guy. Yeah, yeah, because of how strange he is. <laughs> he's really strange. Yeah, yeah. But it's great because he can see counted as an ex, even though like they were in grade five and they like hung out a couple of times. <laughs> exactly. But he's That's still awesome. like this this huge important thing yeah. psychologically yeah. to him. Yeah. The other thing that we haven't really talked about is that the fights are sort of staged in a very video game yes. style. Mm-hmm. When the victor is victorious, the the, vil- the vanquished explodes into coins. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming some of this stuff is referenced to actual video games, but I was not a huge video gamer at the time, so I didn't really get all the direct references. But that's the great, clever thing about the movies. The references are there, but they're also serving a purpose within the... You understand it as an yeah. effect or an affectation of the movie. Exactly. You don't have to say, oh, that's from Double Dragon or whatever they're referencing in a given scene. Exactly. So you're not dependent on this history to be impressed by... Just the velocity and the ferocity of the movie. For sure. Yeah, I totally agree with you there. Like, because I'm not a video gamer at all. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no problem getting through it and understanding all those. Like, they're little things that you know are connected to video games, but you don't need to know the background mm-hmm. of where they come from. Yeah, so that was great. I want to ask you about the mm-hmm. character. I can't remember the name of the character, but he's played by Kieran Culkin. Um, the gay friend. He, like, you, you know, he really shined out for me in this movie. He was one of my favorite characters. He's a very funny, likable character. Yeah, but he There's this thing that movies do. Okay. Where characters are just basically defined by their by this, sexuality. Yes, okay. Um, and I do think it's guilty okay. of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's fine. He's a pos- it's a positive portrayal. There's no judgment of right. his lifestyle. And right. he's cool with it. And mm-hmm. everybody's cool with it. It's not an issue. Yeah. But 
he does seem to, in some way or another, in every scene, announce, oh, by the way, I'm gay. <laughs> yes, and you're that right That doesn't there. bother me again. I'm not trying to come off as homophobic. Yeah. Um, but to add another layer to this, yeah. almost always when you see this character portrayed and in this way, mm-hmm. it's a straight actor playing a gay actor. Yeah. And having worked as an actor, I got to tell you, there is no shortage of gay actors out there mm-hmm. in the world. And I always find it so interesting that they, you know, oh no, we'll cast this against know, type. Like, right? yeah. why? Why cast just cast a gay dude? Then you could yeah. lose half of that dialogue and we would just sort of see just it in his it. mannerisms yeah. and who he was. Yeah. There's something about that. And this is me looking really hard to find something to complain about. And it's not even a complaint because I got to say, I like Culkin in this role yeah. and I, I like the character. Yeah. Like, I, I do enjoy him, yeah. but I do also call it guilty of sort of being a familiar element in a movie that's just full of newness yes yes it really is yeah and I totally agree with you there um but I really like the relationship that they the two have you know their roommates and you know they obviously care about each other and they're you know he's always you know giving advice and and I don't know I just like their relationship in general Mm -hmm. and how free and open it is um yeah so I liked it so what did you think of the climax of the movie Okay. It's a triple climax mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. <laughs> it's, it's an orgy climax. Yes, or yes. Like that. Because we have basically three, well, two and, a, and, and then a sort of false confrontation. Mm-hmm. We have Scott Pilgrim discovering the power of love yes. and using that to fight for Ramona right. and being vanquished. Yes. And then we have Scott Pilgrim finding the power of self-respect. Mm-hmm using that to fight his way to Ramona and becoming successful. Mm-hmm. And then the wild card scene. And I'm just going to put this out there. I'm not saying it's good or bad. It just sort of struck me as odd. He has to face off <laughs> against himself. Yes, yes. It's like this, there's going to be this one more fight at the end of it. Yeah. And they clear the room. I have to do this myself. <laughs> and the girls go outside and they're waiting for calamity to ensue. Yeah. And then he walks out with his doppelganger and like the high five. And he's, yes. basically, he's achieved inner peace. There mm-hmm. was no conflict. Exactly. I don't know. I mean, I get it. And it made me smile, made me laugh. And yeah. I'm going to just assume they pulled it directly out of the book. Yeah. But for me, it was almost like one sort of climax too many. Yes. I think that we had his free life. Once he got his free life and yeah. came back and was able to, to rescue Ramona, mm-hmm. that we kind of want to see... That's the sort of heroic win of the movie. Right. I disagree. Yeah. I liked the multiple climax. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I... Well, typically I do like multiple climax. <laughs> I don't want to misquote it here. Okay. <laughs> um, no, I... You know, it was like the moral of the story, right? And I, I like that they played it out in that way. And, you know, you know, seeing how, you know, he's starting to love himself. Because, you know, throughout the whole movie, he's very self-conscious of himself and I think they needed to show those steps of how he kind of overcome, you know, the difficulties or the, you know, insecurities he's had in himself. It's something that I can relate to, sort of getting yeah. locked into navel-gazing and depression yeah. and unwillingly and unwittingly sort of being insensitive to those around you. And they are very patient mm-hmm. and uh, because they know that you're going to find your way out the other side. Exactly. And in a way, you're right, that's more sort of the climax of the movie than whether or not he ends up with Ramona. Right. And uh, I, I guess I understand sort of... Inter- and it'd be interesting to have that big fight and him not end up with either girl in mm-hmm. some way. Like, the win was not... Achieving a girlfriend or rescuing a girlfriend yeah. or earning the love. Yeah. It's 
It's all about self-love. Coming, coming to terms with Scott Pilgrim. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so in the end, is it yeah. really Scott Pilgrim versus the world, or is it Scott Pilgrim versus himself? Oh my god, mind-blowing. <laughs> mind-blowing. I'm, I'm just going to hit stop. <laughs> So the time has come where we're going to talk about Moulin Rouge. I have spoken about Baz Luhrmann in the past on the show. I talked about his R&J in that I really didn't like it. I was not a big fan of his R&J. A regular guest on the show is Jason Dubray, and I think almost every time he's been on the show, he's said that he's hated a movie, like he's hated a movie. And uh, I always think that's really strong words. Like, it's almost, it's almost strange to waste such a powerful emotion as hate on a movie. That said, I fucking hate Moulin Rouge. <laughs> I hate it. I hate it. Now, I've got some personal baggage, as I often do. My first viewing of this movie was about as worse a way as you could see a movie. Like, there was bad atmosphere, and like, you know, uh, it wasn't a great environment to be watching a movie about a main character who's in love with love, <laughs> you know? And uh, because of that, I knew I gave it some time and I revisited it. And when I revisited it, I really, really still hated it. And I hadn't touched it for years. And this is a movie, like, I have literally thousands of movies, Eric. And I go to people's houses and sometimes they have 10 or 12 movies. And I've always, it's interested to see what movies they bother to own. And I keep <laughs> seeing Moulin Rouge and I keep asking myself... <laughs> How often do you guys really watch Moulin Rouge? <laughs> Let's be real about this. Um, I, I think that part of it is the Baz Luhrmann aggressive style. He, even by his, like Michael Bay editing standards, he is so crazy frenetic. There is one of the longest digital panning shots in film history at the beginning of this movie, which is actually quite impressive as it sweeps over this digital Paris. And for a second, you're like, wow, impressive. And then I don't think a shot holds for more than two seconds for the next 15 minutes of the movie. And uh, it shook me off very quickly. By the time we got to Ewan McGregor and the misunderstanding about is that he's supposed to be uh, there trying to get his show produced, but she thinks he's this big high-rolling money guy and she's trying to seduce him and blah, blah, blah. I was already checking my watch, and we weren't even half an hour into this over two-hour <laughs> masturbatorial offensive piece of shit. <laughs> so, <laughs> I am sorry, but I am of the unpopular opinion that Moulin Rouge might be one of the most overrated movies ever made. That's where I land on Moulin Rouge, but I welcome a second opinion. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> All right, so I guess this is going to be the first one where we disagree. Really disagree. <laughs> okay. I, so I, I, right off the bat, I actually don't disagree with the overall points that you made. I do have notes about how the the edits haven't haven't aged well at all. Um, I do also have a real big complaint about how this movie love is a plot point and not a development, where the two characters just kind of like, I guess we're in love now. All right. Um, that being said, I think just as much as Corpse Bride, this movie has style. Uh, it is a unique world to be exposed to. Um, I find the characters are endearing, if not very deep. Uh, and I do also think that this movie does a really good job of avoiding the number one pitfall of musicals, of having... Uh, it has music that provides forward momentum. Yes. And a lot of the musicals we talked about, and a couple of the ones we're about to talk about, don't do that. They have songs that happen because uh, we're taking a break to listen about what just happened. Yeah. Every time, almost without exception, there's a song in this movie, the plot is moving forward, and I appreciate that. And it's doing so with a style that I also appreciate. Um, hey, you know what? I, I don't think it's super... Fantastic! If you want to go for most overrated movie, I wouldn't even disagree with that. But I think it's fine. I I enjoyed it. Um, it's you have to go in for the style over substance for sure because I am a hundred percent detached from the love story. Right. Uh, but the singing is fun. The <laughs> there's a couple Beatles songs that are done better here than in across the universe. Uh, <laughs> they do. Uh, Baz Luhrmann very specifically does a good job of taking what he needs from the music that he's using and doesn't get hung up on what the original intent of the song was, what the original lyrics were. He just, it, it feels, maybe this is a, maybe maybe I'm accidentally criticizing the movie, but it feels kind of like a murderer's, uh, like, hey, I, I have your daughter be here <laughs> or whatever. They, like, clipped it out of magazines to make the thing. It feels right. like that. We're like, okay, a little bit of U2, a little bit of, Beyonce, like whatever we it's can a collage. Do. And it feels cohesive yeah. despite all of that. Uh, whereas looking at Across the Universe, they're like, okay, this song, we're going to do the whole song. It's going to, we're not going to change the context. Nothing like it has to be as was sung by the Beatles. This movie takes exactly what it needs to move forward and then moves forward. But I would say to an almost overbearing degree, like it's true, they won't play a whole song. They'll play snippets of three different songs. And we yeah. haven't mentioned, this is set in 1890s Paris, right? Uh, mm -hmm. this, <clears throat> this wealthy, or, or maybe not, aristocratic anyway kid, played by the always charming Hugh McGregor. I always like him. He's a good actor. Um, but his father is very ashamed that he's going to try and make his living as a as a playwright and spend his time hanging about in dirty, debauched Paris. And as the movie goes on, the more I'm kind of on side with his dad. <laughs> but uh, the idea, I think, of using modern songs in this very clearly not modern movie was that he was supposed to be so ahead of the, the, the curve with his songwriting that, that his songs seem to come from the future. The problem is, is that the songs that are from the future aren't exclusive to the songs that Ewan McGregor writes. They're everywhere. They just kind of put pop music in a blender and, and, and they're vomiting it out back at you, you know? <clears throat> Whereas the other movies I've saw and, 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 the, and the that we will talk about uses their style to, you know, try to tell their story. I think 
Moulin Rouge uses this style to disguise the fact that they have no story. <laughs> I would agree with that. And they do it the best out of any of these movies. <laughs> that he wore me out. It wore me out. I said the same thing about like this style of movie, uh, uh, Natural Born Killers, the Oliver Stone movie, because yeah. it's so hyper frenetically cut. You get to that two hour point, even if I'm liking the movie, I'm fucking worn out. Like it, it it's it's pushing me away. I think if you're gonna take something with that aggressive a style, you gotta be disciplined with it. Ninety to a hundred minutes max. And there's certainly not enough story to justify the runtime. And he's enough of a fan of his quick edits that, you know, just cut all those edits in half. <laughs> I don't know. I think maybe he's a music video director or a short film director. Um, I saw his Great Gatsby movie on an airplane and I actually was surprised. I actually kind of thought it was decent. It was a Baz Luhrmann movie that didn't piss me off. But for me, after his uh, first movie was at Strictly Ballroom, it's been fucking diminishing returns. And he's like, it's weird because he's like one of the most respected directors out there. And I remember, like, I didn't like it when it first came out and people were foaming at the mouth of it. And I just, I was just like, what are you guys talking about? Like, like anytime I'd ask somebody what their favorite part of the movie was, they wouldn't even be able to tell me. They were just like, oh, I just love the style of it. It's just so, uh. <laughs> And I was just like... <laughs> Yeah, but you don't, like, who's your favorite character? <laughs> John Leguizamo's in this movie playing a dwarf for some reason. Did the character need to be a dwarf? Did it need to be John Leguizamo? I don't know. It's just another stylistic choice, and it's there and gone, <laughs> you know? Um, obviously, I have uh, something rubbed me the wrong way about this movie, and uh, more so than any other Baz Luhrmann movie that I've watched, this was the one that really was just like, you're, you're not for me. Um, there are other directors that have just shaken me off that way. I, I, I watched like my third or fourth Lars von Trier film, and I said, you know what? I'm done with Lars von Trier, <laughs> right? I just, I clearly, we just don't, we do not find the same things entertaining. We just, we're, we're on a different page. I'm almost to that level with, with David Lynch. Honestly, for every David Lynch movie I like, there's three that piss me off. <laughs> so... The one that's starting to scare me is Ridley Scott. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like he hasn't knocked it out of the park in the way that I really count on him to in a while. Yeah. But um, it's it's interesting, like, even if I agree 100% with that, I still wouldn't say that Ridley Scott sucks. <laughs> but, like... But you think Baz Luhrmann sucks. I kind of think, well, I think that his style takes over everything. I think style has consumed everything. And you know what's interesting is that... With watching this and then Across the Universe, I saw a lot of influence of this movie on Across the Universe, and I thought Across the Universe did it worse. Really? Um, At least it was cogent, though. I could follow the camera flow in Across the Universe. There was so many scenes in this movie that were literally dizzying. Even on the small screen, on the big screen, I found them almost nauseating. The people complained when they saw Blair Witch. A lot of people didn't like the shaky cam because it made them feel kind of nauseous. I remember actually feeling that a little bit in the theater with Moulin Rouge. It was just like, calm the camera down. Settle on someone's face for more than a few seconds and start telling this story, <laughs> please. <laughs> like, what is in the end of the day? I guess this is. I mean, we haven't very well mentioned the plot. 
this writer wants to write about love. He falls in with a troupe of actors who have a lot of heart but no script to do. They don't have really a skill beyond the willingness to be performers. They can perform, but they can't create. Yes. Uh, and so he goes to the most loudest uh, club in Paris, the Moulin Rouge, and uh, the head courtesan, played by Nicole Kidman, uh, he falls in love with her. And uh, they have to produce the show, but they have to keep their love secret, and I just can't care about anything that happens to anybody in the movie. <laughs> the show must go on. Will it be a hit? Will he, you know, be able to tell his true story about love? Um, I'm... Spoilers, Nicole Kidman ends up dying of tuberculosis. It's not spoilers. They tell you at the beginning of the movie. That's true. She ends up dying of tuberculosis, which is a relatively clean way for a prostitute in Paris in the 1890s to die. (laughs) Um, I I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I I think that the actors are talented. Like I said, uh, there's times when Ewan McGregor was singing where it's like, I don't know if you're an amazing singer, but you're, you're, you're selling it to me. Like, yeah. He, I don't you're know an amazing if, actor who can sing. You're an actor who can sing, maybe not a singer who's acting. But but uh, yeah. I, I, I think we'll talk about it when we get to uh, La La Land. I think similar things could be said about Ryan Gosling at times. Like uh, I think he can sing, but I think he's more an actor who is singing than a singer who is acting. Um, and we talked before about knowing your format. I'd take an actor that can sing over vice versa any day. Because I think selling the moment counts so much more than nailing the song. Well, and obviously just do careful casting. I remember talking to Jeremy about Schumacher's Phantom of the Opera and then uh, the casting of the Phantom. What, what, what do we have? What do we know about the Phantom of the Opera? He's disfigured and he can sing. So why would you hire a handsome why would you hire a handsome dude who can't sing to play that role? That just doesn't fucking make sense to me, right? It's just like no. Um I, I like I give Moulin Rouge an enthusiastic thumbs down. I think my opening salvo was fairly obvious, but I guess I would say don't take my word for it because I am such in the minority about this. <laughs> like people, and it's interesting because I thought I was in a minority for not really loving it, yeah. and yet I'm I'm the one defending it. Yeah, you're situation. sitting here in rock guy. Yeah, <laughs> like it was, it it. it, it pushed me off and then it just became grading and it's full of people I like too I love Jim Broadbent wearing that ridiculous fat suit and dancing his ass off doing that show like there's such energy that he brings to it uh, but I, I I can't like the movie it's just like it, it it it's rattling to my senses in not a good way uh, another thing that I said about uh, natural born killers which I would all say exactly about this is if you're going to yell at me and this movie is yelling at me, have a fucking point. <laughs> and I didn't see it. So uh, I remain all these years later, not just not a fan of Moulin Rouge. I mean, it might be one of my least favorite movies. <laughs> like, and I'm a lover of film. Like, I don't want to be this guy. I have consciously said on the podcast in the past, like, there's something boring about the guy who's just going to rage on the internet about how fucking stupid this fucking movie is. But this is what Moulin Rouge brings out of me. Like, anger <laughs> comes out of me. <laughs> I don't think Nicole Kidman sucks, and I think Ewan McGregor is about as charming an actor as you can have to center a movie on, you know? And this I, movie I felt, lays there. If I wasn't necessarily agreeing with him, I felt sympathy for him all the way through. Mm-hmm. 
Um, it sucks when someone you love is and you can't be with them. <laughs> that, that that that's sad, I guess. But sure, yeah. There's something just too mamby pamby, too simple about it. I'm here to write about love because love is the most important thing. What's Look, the credo? All you need is love. Yeah, all you need is love. Um, uh, the most imp- important thing that a man can learn is to be loved and that's be actually, loved in return. That's actually Fuck a joke I have. It, <laughs> Fuck it bothers off. me. So, why are you pulling me down in this pit with you? I wanted to be ambivalent about my leverage, not hate it. It bothers me when. Uh, Whenever there's uh, like a writer or a piece of writing in uh, popular culture, whether it's like movies or TV shows or whatever, and it's supposed to be profound and it isn't, yeah, that throws me off. Uh, the one that the first time I really caught this was in the TV show Californication, mm-hmm. where the main character—it's a movie about sex in California—but the main character is supposed to be this fantastic writer. Like people are always like, "Man, you're lucky you're a good writer because you're a jerk and no yeah. one would like you otherwise." But every time we see his writing. It's the dumbest. It's, it's lame. the dumbest. And that line that you quoted is very similar, where they're like, this profound piece of poetry, the greatest thing you'll ever learn. Oh, so motivational. And it just, it falls so flat. And at the, at the end, like, someone rallies Ewan McGregor to follow through with the film's climax because they're like, no, you forgot the greatest thing you'll ever learn. Never forget that. And he's like, oh, you're right. To love and be loved in return. Um, Saying whoever wrote that was a genius. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And again, like when I originally heard of Moulin Rouge and the idea of using the modern music, why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't they keep it to period music and then all of a sudden this guy is writing fucking Beatles tunes? That would have made it almost interesting, Eric. But they was just like, no, we're going to collage. It's going to be everything at once. And we're going to cram it down your throat. We're going to just cram this fucking musical down your throat. And I gotta say, I thought the film was the strongest when it was doing its music video moments. I, I was engaged with that those things moment to moment. I didn't think it had a big story. Mm-hmm. I didn't think the characters as written were particularly deep. I thought they were endearing and fun. Um, but I enjoyed the spectacle of it. Yeah. Uh, and that doesn't, like, rating it one out of ten, that doesn't lend me to rate it very highly, but I don't, I didn't find it infuriating the way yeah. you did. Well, again, it, 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 it hit me the wrong way. And again, it's hard. Once, if it hits you personally, that's a real hard thing to shake off. For some reason, this movie got me personally. But I understand. I, I, I do understand. Uh, I'm not usually this guy, but with this movie, I'm that guy. As far as I'm concerned, I, I, don't see it. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, I would say don't see it. But I'd also guess have to concede that maybe you shouldn't take my word for it. I, like, I think you'll know right away if you will like it based off of what we said. Because I think nothing... Like, I don't disagree with anything you've said. I don't come down nearly as hard as you do. Um, but if, like, you're, if you're listening to this at home... Uh, dear listeners, and the stuff that Larry's mentioned, the stuff that I've mentioned, make you go, okay, that sounds like I can understand why that'd be great, but it still sounds interesting. Probably you'll like this movie. Yeah. If you heard those things and go, oh, that sounds insufferable, you're right. Yeah. I personally think it's a nightmare. Sam! <laughs> I'm the best we could ever play. James Franco's having a giant party. <laughs> This place is beautiful, man. This place is like a piece of me. You two just stepped inside me. You let us both come inside you. Yeah. Boom. Thanks, James Franco. Everybody in the club.
Have you seen Michael Sarah tonight? What's up, Rihanna? I can't believe people still invite him places. Oh, don't touch my ball, bitch. It's a weird face. So hot. What the? F The sheriff's office is urging people to stay in their homes right now. Looting, rioting. For all we know, the Lakers could have just won, and that's the reason why all this is happening. I think it's the apocalypse. It's all in here. And he opened the bottomless pit. The sinkhole? Every single time I turn on the news, sinkhole in South America, a bunch of South Americans getting sucked into the ground. Sinkhole in my ass. Son, we should just stay in here, fortify this bitch, and take inventory of all the food we have. We got 12 bottles of water, 56 beers, Nutella, CT Crunch, a Milky Way. Can I have that Milky Way? No, you can't have the Milky Way. It's my special food. I like it. I want some of the Milky Way. I'd be pretty bummed if I don't at least get a bite of the Milky Way. What you want, son? This is my king. This is my lane. Get out of the way. What you want, hun? Watson showed up. You already have to drink. There are six of us. You cannot rob us. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hermione just stole all of our. <laughs> So I was talking earlier about how you should be suspicious of a movie where everyone says everyone involved had a blast. It was just a bunch of friends getting together to make a movie. Yeah. Well, that's absolutely what This Is The End is. And over and above that, you have a bunch of Hollywood friends playing themselves and taking the piss out of each other. And it, it's, it's an hour and 47 minutes long. And it's this, like, what would appear to be a super indulgent fantasy comedy that a bunch of rich people got to make to amuse themselves. <laughs> but here's the thing. It's fucking hilarious. And it, and it kind of is that, <laughs> yeah. but it, it totally works. It shouldn't work. Like, it, nothing about what I've just described to you should work, but it absolutely does. And uh, over and above that, uh, you know, appeal to my Canadian pride, it's basically about two expatriate Canadians whose uh, friendship is suffering the, their success in Hollywood, and they're trying to get back to who they were before, you know, Jay Baruchel and Seth Rogen became these big comedy superstars. Uh, so they're hanging out and eating you know, burgers and smoking weed. Smoking Jays. Uh, and uh, they, Jay is dragged to a party at James Franco's house. Played by James Franco. And James Franco is played by James Franco very well. You mentioned that Seth Rogen is played by Seth Rogen. <laughs> I, always, I really like, too, that there's this like unspoken, passionate love that James Franco has for Seth Rogen. Like, <laughs> his like is a more than friends kind of like with Seth Rogen. So Jay Baruchel's kind of hating this and, you know, not feeling his friends, Hollywood people. He would rather just be hanging out with his buddy one-on-one. -on -one. And he's not interested in rubbing elbows with celebrities. He just wants to hang with his friend. And then a biblical apocalypse. <laughs> a giant sinkhole opens up behind the party. Many, many, many celebrities die brutal, mm -hmm. violent deaths. 
Special shout out to Michael Sarah. Yeah. <laughs> for really going out of his way to destroy the image of Michael Sarah. <clears throat> it's it's a lot of fun to watch, and the movie sort of settles down to a bunch of A and B level celebrities trying to survive a demonic apocalypse in James <laughs> Franco's mansion. The movie is not very clear in its narrative. There just seems to be a series of chapters and misadventures yeah. that happens. And eventually it culminates in the judgment of our surviving characters. Some make the trip to the heaven above and some Most fall do not. to hell. Um I I didn't watch this movie for quite a while because I was kind of suspicious of it because it did seem so indulgent. And I get tired of celebrities, you know, riffing on their own personas. It's just like, it's the easiest thing in the world to do, right? So uh, it way, 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 way overperformed for me. Yeah. <laughs> like, I liked it a lot. I was already in love with the movie. And then Daniel McBride entered, and it just went up another notch. I think I talked with you about this before. When Danny McBride shows up, I think I uttered the words, fucking McBride. (laughs) He's what, he passed out in the bathtub or something? And just, fucking McBride, man. And he comes out just bad as shit. Just like, just fucking... It's funny because I gotta stop on the Michael Sarah thing. Because every character in this movie plays... The same character that they always play, which is basically themselves. Right. I mean, because it's the self-indulgent thing where Seth Rogen, it's been, you always play the same character. He's the giddy stoner. Yeah, he's the happy stoner, giddy, he's friendly, everybody loves him, he's always, <laughs> yeah. right? And so he plays that. that, well, that's who he is, because he plays that in every movie. And, and Jay Baruchel's really good at being exasperated, and what are we going to do now, oh my yeah. God, and, right? And James Franco is the artist in the, <laughs> the, and, and. Jonah I think Hill's the pretentious. Jonah Hill, that, that's Jonah Hill after his Oscar nomination, yeah. where he gets a little pretentious with uh, you know pronouncing fatalities. There's been a lot of fatalities. <laughs> Danny McBride, he plays the same. He's a little bit of uh, what's his, Kenny Power, yeah. And every character, you know, the party guy, the story. Danny McBride is married with kids. In this movie, he plays the character Danny McBride. It always plays just the party guy, the stone, the druggy, the hard living guy. I love to, the- but. Michael Sarah is the one guy who plays so out of type that yeah. it's it's hilarious. He's he always plays the nice guy that plays like ten years younger than he really is, and in this movie he's maybe a bigger asshole than Danny McBride. He's out on coke, and he's getting blowjobs in the bathroom by multiple prostitutes. Forces Christopher Nitz Platts to do cocaine for the first time. And he, it's so against type that he's slapping Rihanna on the ass. And he's such a prick, even in his death. Yeah, he's, he's getting stabbed by a <laughs> screaming at everybody who stole my fucking cell phone. <laughs> Who stole my he's phone? Stabbed by a streetlight, hauled up into the air, and his phone goes off in his pocket. This is fucking embarrassing. <laughs> well, that's really embarrassing. <laughs> but you have other guys show up in here for like moments. You Seconds. have uh, you have Kevin Hart's in there. Season uh, <laughs> sorry, Jason Segal. <laughs> yeah. The little who's who of Hollywood cameos just getting killed. And you're thinking, yeah, I'd like to hang out this party. This looks like a lot of fun. (laughs) But they keep the whole Hollywood thing going. The apocalypse is happening outside. Meanwhile, let's check out what's happening on the news. So let's turn on the TV. And, of course, James Franco's news house. The TV comes up from the floor. Everybody stops. All this panic is like, whoa. That's that's, that's sweet, man. That's pretty cool. (laughs) That's that's awesome. awesome. (laughs) 
I also love the judgment of the Hollywood party. Like, before all the shit happens, all of the pure souls are shot up into heaven, right? In these huge blue shafts of light. And not none of them have one that person. House. Not one person in that house gets taken, right? None of them are worthy of salvation. And, uh, the worst of humankind are all our Hollywood celebrities, right? The great thing about when Danny McBride shows up is that we've already established they took inventory of all the food they had left in the house, and the first thing he does when is he cook wakes all up, the food. is cook all of the food. He actually uses one of the last bits of bottled water to wash, wash his feet. That's right. <laughs> I can't imagine a movie where more fun was had on set. I mean, watching some of these behind the scenes on this... It, it's like we're making a movie with our buddies and they're playing our buddies. So what we're doing is basically making fun at each other. Mm-hmm. And then we shoot the movie and we're making fun of each other. <laughs> so it's the same thing. But yeah. He's... It feels like the kind of movie that uh, me and my buddies would make if we had like a limited budget <laughs> and, uh, you know, too much to drink. <laughs> I'd say there's no limited budget here, though. I think the set... Design the production on this they looks. Spent some money. <laughs> it looks fabulous. <laughs> that monster that attacks them when they go to the neighbor's house is pretty cool. <laughs> the monster that chases them through the house, the whole the Hollywood Hills burning, the yeah. whole the whole city burning, the demon at the end, everything looks awesome. So much better than compared to R.I.P.D. Yeah, it it, it it's looks computer graphic, but it still feels tangible. Yeah, you're not looking at it's not a cartoon guy jumping on the wall. It it looks great. Um, and it's like the watch. It's a predominantly male cast. Yep. We do have one female show up for for a brief period. Emma Watson. <laughs> and I, for me, that's kind of the one the big moment of the movie. She becomes convinced that they're arguing over who gets to rape. Her. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of, those, of me too, <laughs> one of these classic misunderstandings. I think Seth Rogen has the line in that movie where he says no it's actually funny we're talking about how we're not going to rape you but this movie will change your perspective of how you feel about Channing Tatum oh Channing (laughs) Taint Young Um, that's another great twist of the uh, Danny McBride character Uh, he's sort of framed as lovable but he's actually quite ruthless he insists that he's allowed to, to come anywhere he wants in James Franco's house. And when they finally banish him and they give him a weapon, the first thing he does when they hand the weapon is he tries to shoot them all with it. When they meet him later, and this is maybe 48 hours after he's kicked out of the house, he's got this whole he's Mad Max leader. crew and he's this like cannibal leader. We're cannibals now! Fucking awesome. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of fun to be had in this. I mean, we're, we're laughing like idiots here, but... Uh, you don't know what you're going to get moment for moment in the movie, too. Like I said, it doesn't have this clear structure or this clear goal other than after they get locked into the mansion to survive as long as possible. And th- there is violence as well. This oh, maybe yes. fits the, the horror aspect more than some of the others on the list. 
uh, when that guy gets decapitated that's at the front door. Which so is let the me thing in. that finally makes it real to McBride. Yeah. He has to see his severed head. A severed head pops in through the door and they're kicking it around like a soccer ball. I think it's Jordan Hill. It says, guys, this is a severed head. We can't kick it around like a soccer ball. <laughs> but, I mean, the effects are good. There's there's blood. Um there's an interesting little segment of Jonah Hill being possessed by a devil, which oh, is quite a what, full what body you... burn as he's running through the house engulfed entirely mm. in flames. Yeah, that, that's a good effect. It's impressively mounted. And again, in the end, this whole over-the-top special effects spec- fantasy spectacle is basically circling around two Canadian actors who just want to be buds again. <laughs> And uh, through rekindling their friendship, they kind of redeem themselves and earn their ticket to heaven, which may lead to the only thing that I disagree with about the whole movie is <laughs> their vision of heaven is quite different than mine. <laughs> it's not quite the meaning of life. No, it isn't. <laughs> it's not Christmas in heaven. You had the Backstreet Boys on demand. But to each their own, I guess. We are to understand that for these characters, this is heaven. I mean, this 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 is the kind of movie that turns into a review of my favorite part exactly. is when this happens. Well, my favorite part is when this happens. But for me, I mean, be aware this is a hard R. Yeah, don't watch this with your mom. <laughs> this is not your your mom's not going to like this. She won't understand it. Um, your kids probably should not see it as well, unless they're really fucking cool. But. Um, Depending, the scene for me that defines this movie, whether or not you're going to like this movie or not, is the scene where James Franco is yelling at Danny McBride for ejaculating yes. on what they know. As far as they know, it's the last porno magazine on earth. <laughs> they take inventory of all the food, all the water. We got all seven bottles of water. We got three bags of weed. Yeah. We got uh, three packs of bacon, one Milky Way bar, yeah. and one porno magazine. And the biggest issue in the house, first of all, it's, it's the Milky Way. Well, I want the Milky Way. Craig Robinson, we didn't mention him. He's yeah, also a main character great. in this as well. Yeah. yeah. Seth Rogen says, yeah, Craig Robinson's going to be there. Well, I don't know him. Why? He's hilarious. Really sweaty. He he's a good guy. a lot, but he's a good guy. <laughs> good guy. <laughs> but yeah, the Milky Way bar, but then there's this one porno magazine, which as far as they know, as I said, it's, it could be the last porno magazine on earth. The scene that sets whether or not you're going to buy into this movie and like it is the scene that follows... Someone's ejaculated on James Franco's magazine. And we know. It's Danny McBride. Of course, it's Danny McFucking Bride. He's fucking McBride. Who ejaculated on my magazine? I don't think ejaculated is the word. But uh, what what proceeds from that is an argument about how I will... I can come wherever I want. I'm going to come here and there and... And in the background, you see Seth Rogen clearly holding in laughter, looking away from the camera. Yeah. You can see that clip on YouTube. Watch that clip. If that's not for you, then don't watch this movie. If you can watch that and say and have a laugh, then I say, yeah, you're going to have fun with this movie. There's just a lot of scenes that are just, why not? Like the video diaries. (laughs) (laughs) Seth Rogen pisses into his own mouth for a scene. It's just so fucking crazy. I guarantee you that that video camera sequence was all just put there to justify that one fucking (laughs) gag. And everything else, everybody just took a turn. So in the end, it's the rapture. Yeah. Everyone's getting called up to heaven or left on earth to, to battle it out. 
And we, we kind of so, have to learn the rules. How you, If you've been left behind, you're not a pure soul. You're not good enough to go to heaven, but you're not instantly bad enough for hell. So you could redeem yourself. How you, how you spend your dying moments are critical. Craig Robinson teaches us that it is possible to redeem yeah. yourself. So he, he does something selfless. Yeah. And so he gets raised up to heaven and he's like, oh, look at this guy. It worked. So everyone else figures, well, we got to do something nice. So I think it's James Franco. <laughs> First, they just offers himself to be up. Nice to each other. Yeah, that's a really good idea. But... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why isn't this working? So Franco <laughs> does something nice for the group, and the blue light shines upon him, and he gets ascended up to heaven. And while he's going up, he gives the finger to everyone. Yeah, fuck you, fuck suck my dick, McBride. <laughs> And the blue light goes away. And he suffers a brutal death. He's like, why could you not, just not be a dick for one moment? That's, again, like, unfortunately was, you just have to have that one moment where you kept your fucking mouth shut. And it was the difference between eternal happiness I mean, the, the pretentiousness. and death at the hands of cannibals. <laughs> and of course the McBride crew eats him. But the pretentiousness of it, of the whole Hollywood group I think works and it's kind of fun. Um, it feels genuine too. Like they're they're they are a part of Hollywood, but they're making fun of Hollywood, but like in a sort of believable, almost sort of deserved way. But I have to say that the friendship narrative kind of works <laughs> when like they have to you know let go of each other in order to save each other. Uh, they say goodbye, and I'm sorry I've been keeping you back. Like. There is an emotional payoff, however stupid, to that mo- to, to the movie, and that they manage that on top of the rapture and on top of Jonah Hill being fucked in the ass with a giant dildo. Yeah, you didn't and, talk about that enough. You need to talk about that scene more. I think on top of the monsters and the severed heads and the ejaculation, the emotional core of the movie. You've got everything in this movie. Right? And the emotional core of this movie works. It's like I recently reviewed Armageddon, the Michael Bay movie, and it's like the movie was terrible and it was pissing me off, but I might have just sort of shrugged it off as a so bad it's good type of thing until they tried to play at my heartstrings, and then I was like, fuck you, This kind of worked. I was like, oh, that's kind of sweet. Those two Canadian friends are friends again, (laughs) and they've repaired their friendship. Go and now Canada. they can go to heaven and dance to the Backstreet Boys. <laughs> Everybody! <laughs> yeah. Well, again, my idea of heaven is different than theirs. But other than that, I have no complaints <laughs> with this is the end. It's... And uh, I'm surprised, so pleasantly surprised to be saying that. Yeah, I, I agree. It's... It's fun. They're catching the buzz. So you came here to escape civilization, and we're going to hold you to it. In this tropical paradise. Large Bronkhorst, I'm the new masseur. We swapped out a six-foot Swedish broad for this guy. I'm one. Everyone's got to stick together. Whoa, 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 Code Red, bogey, bogey. Oh, dude, check out that. <laughs> What's up? Dude, don't be gay, man. If they don't want to get whacked. What is it? Too waxy? No. What? 
and they're either getting killed. <laughs> Are you telling me there's some totally deranged dude running around out there? Or getting lucky. Is it too much to ask? Have sex with the guests. Some of them are bad looking. There's Putman, the tennis pro. You've got your arms around me, Jenny. I can only assume this means every other man on the island is dead. Okay, so I'd like to start uh, our conversation about Club Dread by apologizing to you for making you watch Club Dread. It's one of these things, you know, when you're in like a movie sale or something, you get like five movies for five dollars or whatever, and you mm-hmm. got to round out the list. Yes. Even when I put the, the movie in my hand, having not seen it, I did not set a high bar for Club <laughs> Dread. Uh, Broken Lizard had some success earlier on with the Super Troopers, which is a cult-loved oh. comedy film, which I will concede definitely has its moments. Yeah. This movie, not to tip my hand too early, mm-hmm. has no moments. None. No Not a single one. Like, it's a staggeringly unfunny comedy. Yes, it and, is. And that's where I have to start. Like, that's where I opened the door on <laughs> yeah. this review. So, uh, I say with some degree of confidence with what, knowing what you're going to say back, <laughs> Karen Giese, Rankin <laughs> Review Champion. There you go. What do you think of Club Dread? <laughs> well, uh, first and foremost, uh, I watched this movie first. Because I knew it was going to be horrible, and I wanted to get it over with. (laughs) And I was right. (laughs) It was horrible. Um, And I will just say about this movie that everybody who dies in this movie deserves it. (laughs) Every single person is a massive douche. And here's the thing. If they were making a statement about that, if they were winking at us saying characterizations in horror movies are slender and thin, and we hate them, so we're glad that they die, if they were trying like a scream approach... Maybe I could say, oh, well, at least they were trying something here, but they weren't doing that. They weren't. I really they get weren't. the feeling like they thought these fucking assholes they were parading in front of us yeah. were legitimately hilarious. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I also think it's long, right? I'm, not, I'm sorry, I have the case right here, but 118 minutes. Yeah. It is punishingly long. Like, it's 117 minutes too long. It, it, but, like, it really does feel like they're a bunch of, like, Comedic sketches, I say, using my air quotes, Super. being performed at about half speed. Yeah. That even at penultimate, like absolute best execution, would be lame Saturday Night Live material. Yeah. <laughs> but, oh, not even, not even close. <laughs> am I undercutting Saturday yeah, Night Live no. with that? <laughs> this is like, yeah, no, this is like some high school theater wannabes who really have no acting chops and no offense to high schoolers. <laughs> <laughs> we all start but somewhere. We all start somewhere, but these people should never act again. <laughs> Ever. <sighs> in anything. So the the plot, I'm going to say super loosely, yep. a bunch of idiots go to a vacation island resort yep. and are killed. And there is some level of murder mystery <laughs> of like who the killer is, but... We don't care who the killer is. It doesn't matter who the killer is. Mm -hmm. Our main character is a masseuse who comes to this island. He's new. He's being introduced to all these funny group of characters. He's sort of our our access point. Yeah. And uh, he seems like a big sort of dunderhead character. And uh, in the other 
movies that this comedy group has made, he's usually sort of that loud, abrasive character. Mm -hmm. Here they're bravely sort of going the other way, and they're going to try and turn this schlubby guy into something of a romantic lead. Mm -hmm. And again, I'd love to compliment them for this, but, you know, you know, he can overcome the outsider's image of him as sort of like a tubby, useless guy and, and prove himself. And you know how he proves himself? By having magical hands that can give women orgasms while That's he massages right. them. For the record, that... I have blocked out most of this movie. <laughs> I really have. But this is the juvenile level that we're dealing yeah. with. And yeah. it's, it, it's not even that people find the real guy inside him and see that he's cool in spite of the fact that he's not as beautiful as everybody else on the island. Yeah. That doesn't happen. Yeah, for sure. And that's what they attempt. And in the meantime, they're having all this really ugly, like, not funny humor. Uh, one of the first people, I think the first kill, is this complete douchebag who's wandering out in the jungle and has two women waiting on him. And he's got two girlfriends who want to go out in the woods and have sex with him mm-hmm. and feed him drugs. And every word that comes out of his mouth is just disgusting. <laughs> like, you can't understand how he would have one girlfriend, no. let alone two. So, yeah, I mean, I just feel like I've vomited all over this movie. <laughs> so, but who who is it for? I mean, I, I would aim, say maybe teenage boys, lobotomized teenage boys. Yeah, and yeah, sadly, I'm sure it was popular with those said teenage boys. <laughs> Lots of naked, yeah, nakedity. I'm not offended necessarily by that. And oh no, not offended by it. <laughs> but when you have to go to that in order to prove your point to make your draw mm. that's a sad state and like really. the reveal of a bare buttocks or some breasts or something is almost played like a punchline like everybody yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> let's all play let's go to the grown-up pool <laughs> okay everybody um are you familiar with these broken lizard guys like um i've seen the cop movie yeah the super, super troopers. troopers and beer fest i haven't seen beer fest and this one super troopers i liked yeah Again. Quite a bit. Yeah? Yeah. I, I, I saw funny. it a long time ago, and I remember thinking that it had moments. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I'd, have to, I'd have to revisit it. But upon watching this, my desire to revisit it... Shrunk to nothing. Mm. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> it's not that. Not I, that I, I hate doing reviews like this. Like, I want to try and find some sort of constructive inroad that I could yeah. tell somebody that, like, there was some way that they were going for the... The director, uh, Chadrasankar, Jay Chadrasankar, like, I've seen him do, like, stand-up, and I've seen him do sketch work, and I know that he's a funny, not-stupid person. And watching this movie, you would not imagine that it was directed by anybody but an unfunny, stupid person. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Somebody stuck in that teenage boy head. Yeah. Yeah. We're appealing to him. And again, 118 minutes. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this is like the Judd Apatow problem in Hollywood sort of bleeding into other movies, but if you're making a fun, dumb comedy, mm-hmm. I think part of making it fun and dumb is like a nice lean 90 minutes, please. There you go. I don't think that this movie would be helped by taking a half an hour out of it, necessarily. Like, it would still be a terrible movie, but it would have been yeah. half an hour less. It would have been. <laughs> this movie, I did... You know, I'd sit for 20 minutes, and then I'd pause it, mm-hmm. and I'd go do something else for an hour, and then I'd come back, and I'd watch more. Yeah. Because I had to get it done, because Larry asked me to. Oh, sweetie. Well, uh, here's the thing. This is the second time ever that this has happened for yeah. me. That I'm, after reviewing a movie, yeah. it is coming down off of the shelf. Oh, it is I'm like, glad. It's, it's just like, 
as far as I'm concerned, it never happens. <laughs> like, I, I, like I wouldn't want somebody to come into the house and look at that shelf of movies, despite me having such terrible titles. <laughs> like Friday the 13th, oh. whatever. But uh, Club Dread embarrasses me. Its presence on my wall of movies shames me. I think that embarrassment is justified. And I once again apologize. <laughs> For 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 making you watch it, I feel like I've just steamrolled right over you. Please, <laughs> I would love to hear some of your thoughts about Club Dread. You basically said it all. <laughs> it is a horrible, horrible movie. Yeah, and yeah, I'm uh, I'm glad to hear you were taking it off your shelf. Yeah, because it is not good. There's no single redeeming quality about that movie at all. Like, every now and then you think, like, you could see how if they were handling things slightly better, it could have been interesting. Sure. Like, again, if they were commenting, off, if they were commenting on the fact that characters in, in slasher movies are paper thin. Yeah. Or they were, you know, making a point of having a main character who doesn't fit the bill of your classic leading man. You know, if they, sure. like, if, if, that, if I thought they were actually trying to do that with any energy or, or, or intelligence behind it, but... There's no depth here. There's no depth. Yeah. They have Bill Paxton in the movie, and I'm sure he's ashamed of himself. Oh, yeah. And he's, like, playing a riff on the Jimmy Buffett character, a yeah. guy who writes, like, cheesy Margaritaville or Cheeseburger in Paradise songs there you go. 40 years ago and <laughs> somehow has amassed a fortune about it. Massive and fortune. that would be a character that you would think would be ripe for parody because apparently yeah. Jimmy Buffett is, like, this completely sleazy businessman <laughs> despite his beach-loving image, you There you know? go. Yeah. The thing is, there should, there's potential. There's potential yeah. here. And like I said, horror and comedy complement each other. So it does. what happened? There's no excuse for this movie. <laughs> there's just not. Right. I don't know what to say about it. There's no excuse. So should we just stop then? Done. Mrs. Reaper, may I come in? Juliet's been behaving in a rather disturbed manner. Yvonne hasn't been herself either. Your daughter appears to have formed a rather unwholesome attachment to Julia. I think I'm going crazy. It's everyone else who's bonkers. The true story of a friendship that knew no bounds. You're only 14. You're a child. Your mother is rather a miserable woman. Isn't she? The crime that shocked a nation. And a mystery that continues to this day. Heavenly Creatures. So, let's talk about the best movie of this bunch. Wow, Larry, that's bold. Very bold. <laughs> Heavenly Creatures. How do you know I don't hate it, too? <laughs> you don't hate this one. I know you don't hate this one. Heavenly Creatures is about the true story of a case of matricide that took place in, uh, in New Zealand. Uh, two girls who uh, seem to fall madly in love with each other. Their, their, their close friendship seems to spark a madness within each of them. I think arguably that the Julia, uh, sorry, the, the Kate Winslet character uh, was already a little bit crazy when things started and that yeah, definitely both of them had a few issues, but for some reason, the two of them finding each other creates this perfect storm of madness, which spirals and spirals and spirals and finally culminates in this tragic, tragic act. It's a true story, and it's told from a young, hungry Peter Jackson. 
and it allows him to use all of his manic craziness and visual flourish to its full capacity, and it allows him to use his uh, gift for character and emotional depth to full capacity. I will argue that he has not made a better movie than this <laughs> since. Not that he's made nothing but bad movies since then, and I'm a big fan of the Lord of the Rings movies, but I think that this remains his masterpiece. I think that it's enthralling, it's entertaining, and at the end, quite horrifying. And just not a movie you can compare to anything else. I would say with every other movie on this list, I can say I could compare it to something. It's this movie means that movie, or it's a different version of this. Heavenly Creatures is and shall forever be Heavenly Creatures. And for that, it demands to be watched. Absolutely, Larry. I, I don't think I could uh, agree more. I, I love, with the exception of the lamentable Hobbit trilogy, <laughs> I've loved everything Peter Jackson and his collaborator, screenwriter, friend Walsh have done. And I agree that this remains their masterpiece. Although, as far as whether you can compare it to anything else, this is really, in a sense, what I like most about it. You, you were talking earlier about whether you'd call these um, the horror or thriller, but the thing that I love about Heavenly Creatures, well, what makes it so remarkable to me, is it does fit a certain genre in a sense, in that it's maybe the one film more than any other, the one film made in my lifetime, that recalls how Aristotle describes tragedy in the poetics. Because um, although there are certain things he also talks about, the types of character sets of events in tragedy, at the heart of his account, Aristotle's account of the poetics, tragedy is about a feeling. He says it's a feeling of a mixture of pity and horror. I think you used the word horror a moment ago, right, Larry? Yeah. yeah. You said this film is horrifying at the end. Absolutely. Anything that... Yeah, absolutely horrifying ending. And anything that can make you feel horror mingled with pity at the same time, this remarkable blend of emotions has got to be something really special. And that's what Heavenly Creatures does for me. Yeah. Well, and it is the, the uh, such the accomplishment of the movie that we understand everybody's perspective so perfectly. When we get to that ending sequence and the two girls are walking down that path with the, with the one girl's mother and we know where this is leading and we know like the mother's happy. She feels like things are getting better and she's in a good place. And we know that the Kate Winslet character is absolutely terrified but committed. And we know that the Melanie Linsky character is almost enthusiastic in her position about this murder. And watching it all play out is this waking nightmare. <laughs> and we've seen it. We've, we've, we've taken an hour and a half of the movie to get to this point. We've seen them go from being giddy girls who uh, may be outsiders at school, but find each other, who have rich imaginations. They start by writing a romantic sort of fantasy novel, and they end up basically living within it, where we will see these girls dancing with these clay figures that they've created and uh, inventing an imaginary world that is so, more, so much more real and much more powerful to them than the real world that it does eventually take over. And without the screen of you know, knowing that this was just all an invention, that this is all just a Hollywood invention, knowing that this is a real case and that both of those women are sucking the free air today, it, it gives the movie real power.
it doesn't feel exploitive. It feels like we've explored this, um, the psychological depth of these characters to a percentage that I can't think of another movie that, that does. We understand why that murder happens. It's still horrifying, but we understand it. We've explored it with them, and this is the secret. This is why you feel both pity and horror. You feel pity because even at their worst point, even when they're at their worst, you feel pity for the characters. You feel compassion for the characters, even for the murderers. And you feel horror for Aristotle. You feel horror because you can imagine yourself doing the same thing in their shoes. You understand why Kate Winslet and Melanie Linsky have come to this point, why they've committed this terrible murder. Yeah. And it's that connection that Peter Jackson lovingly builds with the characters that makes it so beautiful and terrible. And we don't hate the mother. We understand why the mother has been so strict with Melanie We understand why she thinks that separating the two of them was maybe a good idea. We understand why she was worried and, you know... When her daughter asks her to go for this walk and and is unaccustomedly polite and nice to her, you can see it warms her heart. It feels like, okay, maybe I haven't lost my relationship with my daughter, and maybe things are going to be okay. And no, a few minutes from now, your daughter's going to bludgeon you to death with a brick. It's brutal. Yeah, it's it's part of the achievement of... Fran Walsh in researching this story and understanding it, that she was able to see it. I probably wouldn't have been able to see that these two young women who committed this terrible murder weren't necessarily bad people. They were troubled kids. It was a difficult point in their life, but they weren't necessarily evil human beings. And when I saw the film for the first time, and I have you to thank for seeing it, Larry, when I saw the film for the first time, I, I, I was sure again, yeah, that these, 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 these two children, this is awful. They, they must be psychopaths. As you sort of said, I can't believe they're out in the free air. And yet after the movie comes out, we, it becomes discovered who they are. And it turns out that just as Fran Walsh imagined, it envisioned in the film without knowing what would happen to them in their lives, that they both were essentially good people in the rest of their lives both essentially decent people who just did something terrible. I'm not sure, Larry, if you followed uh, the fate of both of these actual young women. I know one of them became an author under a different name, Um, and I know that they both, I think one of them stayed relatively close to where she grew up, and the other one somewhere in the excited states, maybe? I don't know. Well, actually, well, the one is is in England, and Anne Perry, the Kate Winslet character, was a very successful novelist. And so this is, again, Fran Walsh didn't know any of this when she wrote the screenplay, but she gives Kate Winslet's character this interest in literature, this incredible imagination. She writes her as someone who's determined to be a great writer long before we discover that's exactly what she's become. And the and Anne Perry is, yeah, by all means, her, her stories, my wife has read dozens of her books. She's a very prolific writer, are all about characters facing difficult moral dilemmas, trying to atone for the things that they've done. Right. So she's, she's exactly as we see someone who is in a terrible position, who is drawn into this in the most believable way, but, but hardly evil. It hardly feels evil. Yeah. And even the other character, Melanie Linsky's character, we, we see in the film that she loves horses, and that's what she ended up doing with her life, actually, teaching people to ride horses. And trying to atone, yeah, she's the one who lives in the states. I think, trying to atone for what she did. 
like, and the story is fascinating. I think, like, that was... It was going to be fascinating probably whoever tackled it, but I'm so glad that it was Peter Jackson. I think second only to Terry Gilliam, Peter Jackson knows how to sort of convey this feeling of madness without overspilling, without making the movie fall apart into chaos. He can bring you right to the lip of lunacy and just sort of let you hover there for a while so you see the fever of these guys' madness. And I, I don't know how... Like, I wouldn't know how to accomplish that as a filmmaker. I think that's a really difficult thing to put across. And it feels so effortless, the way Peter Jackson does it. And we, we start hearing what their fantasies are, then we start seeing a little bit of their fantasy, and then slowly the fantasy just overtakes everything. I also think a real reason why I, I sympathize, maybe not forgive, but sympathize with these girls is the catalyst what's the thing that makes them resolve to kill this woman do you remember the idea that they're going to be separated their separation the breaking of the they friendship somehow if they murder melanie Linsky's mother they can be together which yeah. is of course nonsense there was no there was no happy ending even even like yeah on its face just because Melanie Linsky's mother was suddenly dead, even if they weren't caught for it, that didn't mean that Melanie Linsky was suddenly going to be adopted, you know, <laughs> by Kate Winslet's family. Like, it was some weird, Hail Mary, desperate plea to please not separate us. We need each other. And the truth was, they needed to be away from each other. They were exacerbating each other's madness. And the other heartbreaking things, like when they go to the doctor and he diagnoses her with homosexuality. <laughs> it's a funny scene, but it's also heartbreaking because this is a girl who needs help, not like shame, right? Yes, and you see the poor mother being very upset hearing this diagnosis. Yeah, but Although that's just the time. it makes it a good film, this is the one aspect that both women say wasn't true. Oh, yeah? They did not yeah, have a physical relationship? Yeah, it wasn't physical. It wasn't sexual. This is the one point where where Fran Walsh's speculation got ahead of her. Okay. Well, I believe I see where it comes like from. Like, their connection is so powerful, and they're so desperate to be together that I, I can see making that, that assumption or connection. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, I don't think it hurts the movie that it's there. In fact, this movie started a long-form fascination with me with uh, Kate Winslet. I thought she was very, very attractive in this movie, even though she was batshit out of her mind. She was also clearly, well, at a very young age, an incredibly strong actress. Like, you could tell that yeah. right away. This is this is the remarkable another remarkable thing Peter Jackson. It, 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 you know we have so many movies about teenagers played by people who are going on thirty, yeah. and he managed to find two really talented teenage actors. That's hard to do because every couple of years they stop being teenagers, right? And they're still working today. Both of them are doing quite well for themselves. And uh, it all born out of this one movie. <laughs> I kind of feel like Kate Winslet was going to get found, but Melanie Linsky might not have, and I'm so glad that she was, because she's great in the movie. I think she's maybe the colder of the two characters, but in a way, I, I kind of dig her, too. <laughs> like, she does have a chip on her shoulder, but, like, you know where it comes from? Oh, yeah. It, 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 the, the, the chemistry's great between them, and Sarah Pierce, who plays the mother... As you say, just the 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 combination, the alchemy of the acting, 
uh, the cinematography of the special effects, which range from claymation to CGI, capture the madness perfectly. And it's weird because the movie is strangely invigorating, considering it is a tragedy and it does end very somberly, as necessarily it should. The, there was something about this movie that screamed out to be watched, which is why I probably bugged you into well, made you watch it with me again. Because it was one of those movies I discovered in the '90s, where when I found out people hadn't seen it, I was like, "You really need to watch Heavenly Creatures." <laughs> and uh, all these years later, my my position on it has not changed. If you have not seen Heavenly Creatures, you really need to. And if you think we've spoiled it for you, we can't adequately describe it. It's something that needs to be experienced. Well, um, that's right. That This is where I would contrast it to something like The Machinist, which is a very grim movie. I think you'd agree. Oh, absolutely. Even if it's a with ultimate redemption. This is a joyful movie. This is a movie full of life and energy. This is a movie that's a pleasure to watch. This is, this is the sense, if there is tragedy and if there is darkness, this is the Aristotelian catharsis, where you actually leave it feeling better than you did before. Yeah. You're drained, you're exhausted, you're moved, but, but there's, there's the sheer filmmaking is so thrilling and uh, that it doesn't get me down to watch it. The humanity of it. Those are real characters. These are real people. There is no black hat. There is no white hat. This is just a tragic thing that happened. And you kind of feel helpless as you watch it play out. But it's it's real. It's human. And that I wonder if that's the thing. Like, <laughs> no big spoilers, Brendan. This is going to be my number one on my list. But is it because it's based off of the true story that it's number one? Like, did it have that extra weight to it that, that made it seem somehow quote-unquote more important or is it just just the better of the movies yes this is what makes a movie feel real what makes it feel convincingly real i don't have the answer as i say obviously some aspects of the girl's story they may got up wrong some they may have fictionalized but not only does it feel real as if it is your story that it has that that that, that it has to be compelling yeah it, it feels real whether or not it is and i'm not quite sure how peter jackson achieves that effect if for some reason this podcast is finding your ears and you have not seen heavenly creatures you have made poor decisions there's always time to mend larry there's <laughs> always time to make amends is we'll there anything else you want to say brother? The to... is there anything else you wanted to say about heavenly creatures brother there's far too much larry let's just leave it here <laughs> it's good let's say that We've got a situation here. What is this? I didn't do this. You've been charged with murder. Boo. No murder. No one, Sophia. Back. These people are dangerous. They want to steal my life! There's an explanation for all this, David. So there's this weird bumpy history that we have for uh, Cameron Crowe. There was a while there where he was like 
the go-to. He was the heir apparent to John Hughes in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. Uh, like people have reevaluated "Say Anything" as a stalker movie now, but I still think its <laughs> its heart was in the right place. People, um, Jerry Maguire may be a schmaltzy date movie, but it's kind of the schmaltzy date movie. There's a bit more <laughs> to it than that, but <coughs> I, I know what you mean. Yeah. Singles is the '90s. <laughs> Fair enough. And Almost Famous is one of the best movies of that fucking decade, right? I have friends who are musicians, they've been in bands, they've, they said everything about that film is authentic. Yeah. Problem is, since then, it's been pretty spotty for me. Mm-hmm. Like, even when I give them a pass with, like, uh, the, the We Bought a Zoo one, which yeah. I thought was harmless. It was a harmless it, movie. It was it just was nowhere near the level that he'd been in the past. Like an Elizabethtown hurt my teeth, and I didn't even watch Aloha. <laughs> so. I haven't watched Aloha. I, I got behind Elizabethtown, probably, <laughs> and I recognize else. that maybe I'm the one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I liked a lot of that stuff. I think he was the, what he had done in other movies before amplified uh, quite a bit. I had seen some version of the Kirsten Dunst character in his movies before and maybe done a little bit better. But I liked a lot of stuff in Elizabethtown. I was I was still a fan of it. It's a but, debated, it's a debated but it's not one that everybody, almost famous, ended up on almost every top ten list that particular year. Uh, he, won, he won the Academy Award for the screenplay. screenplay. It's an amazing movie. Um, <laughs> and it's... I, Kate Hudson yeah. has... That's the... To me, the only performance she's ever given that uh, was, you know, that worthwhile. And, and fairly speaking, though, the dividing line between insanely successful Cameron Crowe and spottily successful yeah. Cameron Crowe is this movie. Mm-hmm. It's Vanilla Sky, and it's clearly the odd one out in his in his oeuvre. Right? It's the most out there. It's a remake of an Alejandro Amenabar film, mm-hmm. uh, and he saw it and it blew his mind. I think Tom Cruise showed it to him. His yeah. mind was blown by it, and he wanted to create that experience for an American audience. He wanted to be the guy to deliver it. And, you know, everything we see or seem is but a dream within a dream. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a bold and ambitious thing to do. And, I mean, he calls it more of a remix or a cover song version of it. Yeah, because that's as how he thinks. to uh, mm-hmm. a, a, a remaking the yeah. movie. It... Strangely, I keep on making weird <laughs> pulls of films. It reminds me of the Kevin Smith movie Jersey Girl, oh, okay. in that Kevin Smith was trying to make a late stage John Hughes movie, but Kevin Smith is much better at being Kevin Smith mm-hmm. than John Hughes. I like where his heart's at, and I get what he's trying to do here, but this is far afield from Cameron's comfort zone. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if he's a right fit for the material. There's really great scenes in this movie, and there's really great ideas in this movie, but I don't think it's a really great movie. To, to me, this is this is the one I, I was alluding to. That To me, like the WTF mm-hmm. for this director and this material. Um, and I remember being thrilled this movie came out and I was probably first weekend or so went to see it and it ended up on my worst list that year. Yeah. Uh, Has your opinion changed at all? <laughs> I, I may have been a little bit softer on because I, I refused to see it again right. and I, and I watched it for this 
and I was maybe a little bit softer. Now, all along, even with the first time I saw it, with all of my frustration and hatred and venom towards this thing, which I thought was so arrogant and so over the top and, um, uh, and ridiculous, maybe that's what the people who feel that hate Magnolia are all about, is the way I was feeling about Vanilla Sky... I do want to do a shout out to Cameron Diaz. I think this is she was this, really this may be her best performance. Yeah, I was shit talking her for Gangs of New York recently. So yes, yeah. I will back. I, I heard that podcast, <laughs> and I and I was thinking, oh, I get to review one where we say some nice <laughs> things about because she's another one that she gets uh, like shat on quite she's a bit. Inconsistent, I will agree, but mm-hmm. she doesn't necessarily suck. You just have to be careful how you cast her. Yeah. You know? And. If nothing else, Cameron Crowe does know how to cast a film. I agree. And he can get some pretty good performances out of uh, Kate Hudson. I, I wanted her to win the Oscar for Almost Famous. And I, I think Diaz, probably because of her celebrity, wasn't nominated for this movie. That's the only nomination I think I would have given it. It got nominated because Paul McCartney did a song for it just because he, Cameron Crowe has all of these crazy connections in the music world and he can get... He grew up writing for Rolling Stone. He can get Paul McCartney to <laughs> yeah. create and, and write and uh, perform an original song for his movie. Um, I didn't think it was songs all that, that interesting. but Although I will give a shout out to the soundtrack. I own it, and there's some really great stuff on it. Yeah, because and because of um, who he is, he can get anybody, and he can get the, 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 the rights to terrific songs. I agree there is some, some great music in there. Um, but there's points in and in, in you're you're watching this thing and it's it's kind of like uh, as I said the the very first half of the Tom Cruise's Magnolia performance I thought that was very much in his wheelhouse because uh, he's a charismatic character um, and I, I I felt like the first half of this film um, was a Cameron Crowe film. Even like in a cliche-ish way, because there's this uh, uh, Penelope Cruz and Tom Cruise have this uh, this wonderful date after he throws this party, and um, and the music that plays is uh, uh, is a Peter Frampton song that is used in every single romantic comedy <laughs> for the coming attraction, uh, and I see oh this is really really on uh, the nose. I yeah it's it but it. It, it, it felt kind of like I'd, it took me out of the movie for a moment. It's like, oh, that's such a cliche ish song to use for this particular scene. But I don't know if he's the one who kind of got that going because all along he's kind of put the right music with the right scenes, and then a lot of people will go and, and copy from him. Unpopular opinion? But, but then, yeah. <laughs> uh, Unpopular opinion for me too. Uh, Penelope Cruz, or yeah, Penelope Cruz. Cruz yeah, she the two played the same character uh, in the original Spanish language film. Did she? Yeah, she okay. played the same character, so she's doing this again. Mm-hmm. Um, she's incredibly beautiful, mm-hmm. and she has the thick Spanish accent, and I don't want to hold that against her. But it's interesting. She's played. It's interesting just from an acting perspective to essentially play the same part twice. Mm-hmm. But I don't think she's super strong in the movie. No. I think part of it is that there's a lot of these sort of whimsical Cameron Crowe lines that are just sort of, just sort of be gently sort of lifted off, and she's performing them. And there's just something mm-hmm. off about her cadence and the delivery. You can see how that would work, uh, and if it just came out slightly differently, there is something so important about the movie that we love how in love these two people are. 
and you have to buy it. And I didn't. And I didn't buy it. No, no. Okay, good. Yeah, we're in the and same page. That's a problem because yeah. that's going to be a linchpin mm-hmm. to get us into the rest of the movie. Here's the other thing that was interesting. Just and I don't know what came first, the chicken or the egg. Here, um, I, this was a point when Penelope Cruz was Tom Cruise's girlfriend. girlfriend. Yeah. You know, so that was the other reason that she was in the film. Now I don't know if they met on the set that's what at I the assumed, same at the same time as the the Cole Kidman divorce was happening, mm-hmm. and. And, and that's how... It, but they really did not have chemistry on screen yeah. together. Isn't that strange? A lot of times when couples are in movies together... It, it doesn't the, work. Halle Berry did that shark movie with her boyfriend and there was just... Like, they were playing a couple and there was just nothing no. happening. Uh, but, but others can and... You yeah. know, actually, Cruz and Kidman were good on screen together. Uh, we should do a little bit of plot because I'm. Yeah, yes, that's right. We're, Sorry, we're I don't mean to cut you off, but uh, no. Tom Cruise is a spoiled, rich, selfish playboy. I don't think there's there's a Bruce Wayne kind of figure. Okay, uh, even his friend Jason Lee, I think he's just consistently shitty too throughout this movie. But it's supposed to be fun and charming. But mm-hmm. I don't know. It's another one of these movies where the main character is a spoiled, rich person who's you know wants and needs we're supposed to really care for anyway uh he has what he has described as a you know uh friends with benefit relationship with this cameron diaz mm-hmm. character but when he meets with and instantly falls in love with penelope cruz by stealing her away from um, from jason, jason lee's Lee. character yeah uh, i know i have everything but let me take what you have yeah uh <laughs> again hard to hard to like him you don't know why jason lee seems so friendly about it um but Cameron Diaz's character sees that he's made a connection with another woman, gets him into her car, and she crashes the car, killing herself and disfiguring him. Uh, he can't put the pieces back together, and then all of a sudden the movie seems to just devolve into madness. We find oh, out madness, yeah. we find out that he has injected himself into this basic stasis and is being fed this lucid dream, and that things are going wrong. The dream is starting to fall apart. So they can either replug him into another dream, or he can choose to wake up by taking a very literal leap of faith. And this is all accomplished in very clunky ways. Ooh. Like Tilda Swinton shows up and delivers some exposition, right? There's a lot of that. A lot of exposition. This endless, uh, towards the end of the film, this endless elevator ride where everything is explained to the audience. And I keep on talking about editing things out of movies. Here's another example. Mm-hmm. I love Kurt Russell, by the way. Yeah. Do not just think this is me talking shit about Kurt Russell. If we took Kurt Russell out of the film entirely, would the film be missing anything? Well, and, and for a while there, you're watching the movie and you're thinking, Kurt Russell's, like, this is, this is not real. Like, why was this guy spending this much time with Tom Cruise? There is actually a reason for it later Tom on. Tom Cruise needs someone to talk to. Um, but that's I, I, I would have uh, liked two-thirds of the movie to be cut out. Um, because because I, investigation I was so It's not annoyed. a murder investigation because no murder took no. place. A bunch of imaginary stakes. Uh, him telling him the Kurt Russell character, like either his conscious or a representation of his fear, depending on the scene as required. Should he be telling him to jump or not to jump? Does the movie even know? Right? And I think in Cameron Crowe's head, the idea is we were supposed to be washed, this stuff washes over us and it blows our mind and we think about it and that's it. And that's but, enough. But he tells and, us what to think. But exactly, yeah, he tells us terrible. what to think. And first of all, I'm of the case that 
I don't think that's enough. I think you should have, even at least for you personally, uh, some kind of plaster man, some kind of idea that you are trying to express. And, uh, you know, if not, then you're just making an absurdist film. Mm -hmm. It's masturbatory. It's for you only, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, The thing is, I know that Oh, I don't know. I've never met the man. But I like to think that Cameron Crowe's one of these guys who's got a heart as big out as all outdoors. Mm-hmm. You, know? you listen to some of the lines that he has in his movies that, if mishandled, are the worst kind of tacky schmaltz. Yes. But with his gentle touch, with the right cast, he can absolutely get you in the soul with it, right? This is, like I said, this is not where you belong. This uncomfortable no. nether nightmare. Is this real? This is not Cameron Crowe. No. Cameron Crowe deals with the heart. I'm sorry, dude. You should be working for the Hallmark Channel. I'm sorry to <laughs> yeah. be dismissive, but this is not where he belongs. And is it fair for me to judge him so harshly for making a movie outside of his comfort zone? Maybe. You, take, you take a risk. I do not yes, like this movie. <laughs> I, I, I like directors who take risks, but this one was not worth worth it at all. I feel like he was starting one of his own movies, and then he he wanted to do something wildly different. Uh, he said it's not really a true representation of the original film, which I haven't seen, uh, to be honest. Um, yeah, at one I point, at one it. point, there's a, because they to show how powerful or how uh, uh, well connected the Tom Cruise character is, much like Tom Cruise himself. Yes. Steven Spielberg makes a cameo, cameo. appearance, appearance as, as do several other uh, people throughout. Um, yeah, I noticed Michael Shannon in the movie. I totally Michael, forgot. He yeah, was yeah, movie. he was that that guard, yeah. and uh, and that was kind. Of, but nobody knew who he was yeah, that's at the time. Why I don't we often it. will will see these actors who now are you know very prominent um, in in earlier works, and but, and so I I, I think that suggests he's good at casting because you know he, he spotted he Michael Shannon before the rest of us. <laughs> what what is what is strange about it? And I think Tom Cruise can handle Cameron Crowe's material and he 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 did um a serviceable job some people who love jerry Maguire will be really mad at me for saying a, a serviceable job i i didn't by a long shot think it was tom cruise's uh best performance but it's interesting to me in this film that uh jason lee who I, we had to rip apart with the stephen king movie uh the first time i sat down with you script, which dude. was the script that, that was, was not jason script. lee but jason lee is totally convincing in every scene in this film uh, a movie about his character and about him would have been really interesting. Cameron Diaz works completely because she has that. It's funny. She got to kind of play the stalker version of in the something about Mary characters. Right. When all those guys were stalking her character and that she got to play that type of a character here. And um, she does a great job of it being kind of flirty and then kind of fun but then it starts to get like really really kind of dark and serious and we lo- we lose her though she yeah. we don't get to see her for the second and third acts of the movie and that's an enormous loss because she is the most interesting character and i just spent uh so much time praising tom cruise and mm-hmm. throwing s- smoke up his butt about uh magnolia. magnolia and getting mad at you because you uh <laughs> you it. you sneered a little bit at his performance you know you didn't hate it but you he is so bad in this movie. He is so over the top. There's a scene where he gets drunk and he's wearing this creepy mask, which is supposed to, you know, there's reasons for that. I I hated his performance in this movie so much. I couldn't get behind that. Then the story went into these 
weird directions and I, I, I just thought it was it was so uh, um, it was it was such a vanity project and then we have these long scenes where everything is explained compared to some of the other directors uh, who uh, show but don't tell Altman Lynch we're gonna get to in a few minutes here um, th- this is such a bad screenplay the beginning had potential the first act was great uh, and there were perhaps the characters and the actors to to make something out of this, but it is such an awful movie. And I'm almost going back to my first viewing of it because I was I'm, mad because I was so mad. I wasn't as mad this time because I knew what was coming, and I was kind of That's watching, trying to figure it out a little bit more and give it. Maybe I thought, well, maybe I misjudged it. I I, I do recognize that when I'm younger and seeing these movies and. Especially when yeah. I was in kind of the college age, I thought I knew it all, and now I know I, that I know nothing. Um, you get dismissive a little bit. You know, I just re-reviewed What Dreams May Come, which is a movie that I talked a lot of shit about mm-hmm. back in the day, and I've softened on it considerably. I don't think it's an amazing movie, but like no. there was a time I would have kind of rolled my eyes and maybe made fun of it, and I don't think I feel that way anymore. I would also say that I've softened a little bit on Vanilla Sky, but not enough that no. I would encourage anybody to watch no, it. No, don't watch it. No, There's a really cool scene at the very beginning with Tom Cruise running through empty Times Square. I like the idea of the skyscraper above the clouds, like conceptually is kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's some cool visual stuff to the movie, but mainly I was bored. I remember the first time I watched the movie, I was with, with you, I was kind of being actively bucked off and pissed off by the movie like I was aggravated this time I was just bored and as far as me doubling down with the the Tom Cruise I'm going to back you up here uh mutual friend of ours Sky Brandon was yeah. on the show we talked about Shakespeare and we talked about there's nothing worse than watching an actor perform Shakespeare when they don't understand what they're saying mm-hmm. that's what this performance feels like to me this feels like Tom Cruise has no fucking idea what's going on from scene to scene either He's the producer of the movie. He doesn't understand the screenplay either. He just knows it's brilliant, right? So he's just delivering the lines, and the context is lost. Uh, Yeah, you can skip Vanilla Sky, and that's unfortunate, because I I keep on hoping that Cameron Crowe is going to come out with this next movie that's going to remind everybody what an amazing filmmaker Mm -hmm. he's. It's been a while. And and I even want to sort of like, because there was a lot made of that emptying Manhattan and having him drive around and he's alone in Manhattan bit yeah. and, and how they, they filmed pulled it there off. and how they pull, they pulled that off. Kind of like the equivalent, it was La La Land with the, the, the freeway uh, yeah. musical sequence there. I mean, I, I introduced the dream idea, but I, I think it was just a gimmick. Yeah. Like, I can't even give credit for that. I don't think that's all that interesting. The only thing that was interesting is I just just got back from New York and I was there and I was kind of like, oh, okay, look, all the streets are empty. I'm not used to seeing them empty, but that's Low that's all praise. I got from it. Ter- terrible praise. movie. Is there anything else you want to say about it? It's Vanilla a terrible Sky? movie. Don't see it. Okay. They were going to kill us. You saved our lives. Hello, my hero. Tom Stahl is a family man with long-standing ties to this community. Right now, this community is rallying behind him and calling him a hero. Here you go, Tommy. Great, more reporters. You look like reporters. You're the big hero. Really don't like talking about it, sir. You sure took care of those two bad men, Joey. My name is Tom. It's Joey. 
I have a weird job. relationship with Cronenberg because, like, I love to support Canadian talent, and like, I'm I'm on board. I typically what would happen with me is I'd see a trailer for the new Cronenberg movie, and I'd say, "This looks awesome. I should check it out." And I would check it out, and I'd be kind of disappointed by it. Now, over the years, I've grown to really come to love Cronenberg, but as a rule, I have appreciated his more commercial fare than his more, you know, Cronenbergy stuff. Which means I like things like the Goldblum Fly and the Christopher Walken Dead Zone more than I like things like Crash or M. Butterfly, right? Uh, this History yeah. of the Violence one was a big, pretty huge mainstream success and it garnered a lot of award nominations, deservedly so. But it also manages to be very much a Cronenberg film. And as it yeah. turns out, it might be one of my favorites. So uh, I am a huge surprise fan of A History of Violence, a movie that I got around to seeing and that actually kind of really took my breath away how much I, uh, how, how affected I was, how emotionally involved I was to this story. This is the one movie of the bunch that I don't know anything about the source material, but I do know that it is based on a graphic novel. And uh, yeah, Me neither. I had no idea going yeah. into this. I haven't read this one. This is the one I haven't read. Apparently the screenwriter uh, got the rights for the book and adapted it. Uh, mm -hmm. The script ended up on Cronenberg's desk. He said he liked the themes, found it interesting. He basically added a little bit of this kink angle to it that you started talking about with some sex scenes. Uh, sort of Another angle to sort of show us uh, of the relationship anyway. But mm -hmm. sort of kept the brute violence and sort of morality identity tale. I'll, get, I'll let you get your, your thoughts out here, but I'm just going to do a quick service mm. to the plot. Uh, Viggo Mortensen plays a small-town diner owner. He's married to Maria Bello, and he's got, mm. uh, you know, he's got a couple of kids. And uh, normal life. Stephen McCaddy and uh, his sidekick come into the cafe, lock the door, and make it clear that they mean to do some terrible business in that store. Everybody's life is in danger. And Tom, Viggo Mortensen, steps to the plate. He has wounded himself, but he manages to stop these two villains by brutally killing them. <laughs> Spectacularly. Yeah. This brings him media attention, and the media attention brings him the attention of this old crew from his past, or are they? It's sort of a, is it true, is it not? Who is Tom at the end of the day? Is he who these guys think he is? Is he the small-town guy? Can he change between... Um, but this altercation, this violent altercation, unspools his life, changes the relationship with his family, changes his own identity. And uh, it's a lean, like, 100-minute psychological it's, it's short for what it accomplishes. And it really, really has teeth. So that's where yeah. I land <laughs> on a history of violence. But, Brock, please tell me again what you think of it. <laughs> I I really like this movie, and uh, I hadn't gotten to watching it until just getting ready for this, and I'd always been to, my wife and I had always been to watch this, because we like Viggo Mortensen, I think he always, I, I can't think of a single time I've ever seen him phone in a role, he's always in it 100%, and, uh, you know, again, I like Cronenberg, I, there's, yeah, definitely there's, there are some bizarre titles in his uh, in his bag but there are some some pretty good stuff and his I, some of his older stuff is is really phenomenal and i mean there's some 
you know, like I, I, I was saying this before, I, I think, you know, if you took out uh, a couple of the, or, or even just kind of changed up kind of how, how they were done in a couple of the scenes, you could easily, this could easily pass as a Coen Brothers movie, right? Like it's got that fiasco feel of just shit going wrong. And uh, it's really, you know, in people's faces. There's a lot of, there's complex relationships. The relationship between him and his son is, uh, you know, and maybe this is, you know, being a dad and stuff, but I, there's, I was, there wasn't a single facet or single interpersonal relationship in the show that didn't fascinate me. And I was really deeply impressed by how good a movie it was. Everybody is amazing in it. And you're right. There's something about the specificity of the shots and how the violence is handled that is almost Cohen-esque. But I do mm-hmm. really feel Cronenberg at work here because uh, underneath this like fairly basic, you know, ghost of the past storyline and uh, tale of identity, uh, we have real psychological depth. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, we have two sex scenes, very deliberately two sex scenes between Viggo Mortensen and Maria Bello. One as sort of a, a cute couple trying to keep things interesting when she comes in with a little cheerleader uh, outfit and mm-hmm. we see a genuine warmth and connection between the two of them that is real. Even though, mm-hmm. we, as we find out, it may or may not be based on lies, their connection is real. Uh, so when she ends up having this really awful, rough sexual encounter with this man that she barely knows who is her husband on a stairwell that leaves them both sort of bruised and stunned it doesn't just feel like an icky cronenberg sex scene it is that but it doesn't just feel like that it feels to Mm -hmm. me like it's there for a reason and i feel like i know both of them a little bit more after we walk away from that moment well he really talks uh when when he's confronted when he's finally admitting that he is this other person as well uh he talks about um you know he killed him or he thought he killed him he, he really you know she asks him if this is like multiple personality and he's like he's like no the, well it is but I, I i killed that guy and now i'm this guy and um you can't that you know and i think that's thematically one of the, the, the major points of the whole movie is right you can't bury that it's always a part of you and he doesn't he isn't able to come back and rejoin or reintegrate into the new family until he's um until he's taken that in and not killed it but but become it and made it a part of him and i think part of what they're saying too is like it's there the two sex scenes are there's a sex scene with him with the new guy and there's a sex scene with the old guy and the wife i think the wife always knew he was there you know she's a lawyer she's you know, like there's that kind of there's that hidden bad guy kind of thing to it, and uh, I, you know, I I really do feel like like that's it's it's the two personas, right? And the son the son does the same thing. He's got the he says, you know, oh well, who am I talking to? Am I talking to dad or am I talking to the guy? Like, am I going to get whacked if I have to talk to you about this? Right? Like, there's until he until he goes on his uh, crusade to go, you know, end it and put that history to bed for good he's he's both those men and neither and when he comes back he's both those men together and he's his real person he doesn't walk into that house like tom he walks in as this man reborn having come through this 
And one by one, as he sits down at the table, his family takes him back. And that that scene is so powerful. That end scene just blew my mind. I was so impressed by the, and it's almost completely nonverbal. Yeah. Uh, they're strangers, but they're still a family in a lot of ways. I think also and, I want to mention Ashton Holmes, who plays the eldest son, I believe. Oh, uh, who, such a good job. He, he starts off the movie as one person and finishes as another as well. But you're not sure if this new influence from, you know, his dad is good or bad. Was it better when he, you know, tried to defend the bully with words or just took the beating and deflated the situation? Or was it better when he beat the bully so bad that he became, you know, the bully himself, that he became the terror of the high school, you know? I, I don't I don't even see it as bad. I think that the big thing is, is that um, when Tom, uh, Joey, whatever we want to call him, when he when he allows himself to be this other side of himself, it also gives his son a reason to be okay with those tendencies that he has, with, the hit, with his strength and his ability to stand up. And I, do, I think that if he hasn't, hadn't grown in that way, I think Tom Joey, Viggo Mortensen, dies uh, on his lawn. I don't think the son steps pulls up the and kills the, pulls the trigger without having been allowed to be strong by seeing his dad be more than what he was. Yeah. I'm sure he was very much at conflict with these two sides of himself, but, and that, and I think that's, the son makes a really good foil. Like the, you know, the, the, he can't, he can't be a whole person and be what he needs to be uh, and become a man and become a, you know, a, he's only half of what he could be as well. And he doesn't know why at least, you know, Viggo Mortensen's character, Tom Joy, at least he knows why he's in, or he maybe doesn't even realize he's why he's incomplete, but he has knowledge of what precipitated that kind of, you know, split and incomplete of him. Right. I don't think he even realizes that he's incomplete until it's forced upon him. I think you kind of wonder how this would have quietly ticked away in him had he not been revealed. Had this secret mm-hmm. spilled out later, would the fallout be even worse? That, I think that's hinted at, but I don't think... Yeah, like I think that's a really valid question. I think that's a really... that's It's, it's a deep movie. I was really impressed. Like I say, I, uh, there's not... I don't have very many bad things to say about this movie, and I can't even, off the top of my head, think of anything that you know, glared in my face and, you know, well, I, I think there's say... a, oh, sorry. I think there's a little bit of like the firefight at the end has a couple of, you know, weird bits, but even that it's, it's more, it's the emotion you know, that find behind it. I would argue that, uh, two of our villains, one played by Ed Harris, the other played by William Hurt are bordering on overplaying their hand. Like they <laughs> are really pouring it on. But mm-hmm. like they they make no bones. We're bad men. We're gangsters. But like, there there's something you know. There's the devil in Ed Harris's eyes. You know he he has no poker face at all. And William Hurt really lays on that thick accent and seems to really enjoy playing this utterly you know morally empty <laughs> criminal. Uh, but when mm-hmm. you talk about the violence, when when Tom does start like full on superheroing a little bit towards the end, snapping people's necks and being a ninja and killing 
not only without any emotion behind it, but very efficiently, very lethally. Like it, what happened in the uh, in the restaurant was reflexive. It was defensive. It was like a just a reaction. Like I said, this was mm-hmm. the work of a precision killer. This was a man who was a superhero at killing. And it's the mm-hmm. most comic booky sequence of the movie, which is why the whole William Hurt excursion at the end sort of almost feels like its own little mini movie. I still yeah. like it, but we walk back into the reality as soon as we get back into that ending. You say when he walks home and sits at the dinner table, and the family looks at each other and sort of, or you know, begin the journey to reinventing themselves. Uh, it, it's it's powerful stuff, and it's in a package that is you know could have been you know like the back of a sylvester stallone 80s action movie right small town diner has a dark criminal past and the bad guys come looking for revenge uh but it's so much deeper than that yeah and i guess i think that's one of the only you know it's not even that i can't even say it's really a knock against the movie but it is so different of a movie for this category than every, everything else. Um, it almost it, doesn't belong. <laughs> well, yeah, like there's, I mean, there's a whole, like, you know, like it's movies like, uh, you know, like uh, Ghost City and there's like a few other ones that are kind of serious comics. Oh, Ghost that, World, yeah. Or Ghost World, yeah, sorry. And, uh, you know, there's a couple of those that are like drama comics made into movies as opposed to like superhero stories. No. And this one's kind of dances on the line and it's, it, it's the only thing that kind of, maybe that's why it is hard to talk about it with these other ones in that same way. Cause it's like, well, it, and, and I guess partly too, cause I haven't read the comic book. So, you know, uh, there's, a, I have a standard or I kind of, one of the things, one of my criteria points when I did, I like my, how I'm going to rank these. This was the one that I, I couldn't do as, it didn't fit the whole mold because I had other I had criteria like, well, how did it do with the story or what did it, did it accurately do this or did it transcend what it could do? You know, like all these things that I was like, well, that this did this better than that. And this, you know, when I was kind of ordering them and this one, I'm like, I just really liked this movie. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's like, it's, it made it's it hard, hard to, to say to, that this is a comic book movie because it doesn't seem like a comic book movie. It seems like yeah. this pedigreed, you know, rich, deep Oscar movie, which, as it turns out, it is. Just happens mm-hmm. to be based on a comic. Maria, but that, Bello, man, Maria Bello oh. is super hot. <laughs> I hate to oh, sound that's... so much like a dude, but holy shit! <laughs> you know what? My favorite scene, one of my favorite scenes with her. I love a couple. I thought that. Was... You know, um, she's an amazing actress too. By the way, I don't just want to say she's beautiful. She's an incredible actress, but oh my god, she's so sexy in this movie. <laughs> no, that, but that, that the look on her face when she's shoe shopping and her girl's gone—that see, like, but you know—and she knows, she knows how bad this guy is, and she's still like, like Mama Bear, like, you came this close to my child. <laughs> yeah, you I love that. You know, fuck off right now. <laughs> and it's I don't not care a... what you are. It's not an easy role to play. It's like one of those things like, oh, I'm the supportive wife or I'm, you know, sort of the whining sort of shrill role in the background of all of this violence. And she gives it such depth. And uh, if when, if there was a weak link anywhere, I believe this firmly. If there was one weak performance in this, the whole deck of cards would fall. Yeah, no, like you, 
and, and I don't, I, I didn't feel like anybody, I didn't feel like any of the characters, it's certainly the, hit the family. I mean, like the, the mobster characters were all, Big. some of them were caricature-y, but um, everybody in the small town felt real. And his family felt the realest of all. One of my, uh, sorry, one of my favorite little scenes, I'm just going to, just because it's whatever, but the, the right after the, uh, the the bullies are driving their car and they like cut off the uh, the real bad guys. Right. And they're like, they're like, no, we're going first. And the guy in the truck just gives him the flat, cold stare. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, it's like, we, 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 we're not that, yeah, no. <laughs> like, this is the difference between someone who is a braggart and somebody who's really bad news. Yeah. <laughs> it was, it was again, a nonverbal scene, but it was just long enough. It was just right. Like, there's so many just right things in this movie. I was really happy with Yeah. Well, uh, this sort of started a nice long chain relationship with uh, David Cronenberg and Viggo Mortensen. You um, did uh, the one about the Russian mob, Eastern Promises, and another one about a famous psychologist whose name is going to escape me right now. So uh, it sort of opened a new sort of chapter in in, in Cronenberg and an era that I so far have been enjoying quite a bit. I really like Eastern Promises as well. Yeah. If you have not seen A History of Violence, watch it. It Mm -hmm. is... Seconded. It's the odd movie out in this group, and uh, that is kind of you know just how it worked out with these comic book adaptations but uh, it's one of those things that I can imagine somebody listening to who's a fan of superhero stuff may may have missed and uh, it's awesome relax I'll make you feel like you've never felt before God bless your hands why do you feel this Oh, yeah, that's fantastic. No. No, not that. I spit on your grave. You scared the dead man. What do you want? It's you I want. I find it really weird that there's a franchise that has been made out of I Spit on Your Grave. <laughs> it's been remade, and then that remake has had two sequels and a prequel now. Mm-hmm. And, well, the prequel, is that the recent one you're talking about? Uh, yeah, I haven't seen it. I just know that it exists. I, I shouldn't That's, speak for it. Because I think you're talking about the direct sequel to this one, okay. to the original. That's the one where it's two and a half hours long. I don't know. <laughs> I have not watched it. <laughs> no. The thing about I Spit on Your Grave, which a lot of the times works for a horror movie, is its blunt simplicity. A 
attractive young writer wants to have a little sort of uh, personal vacation time to read and get inspired and do some work. And she is fucking brutalized by a bunch of guys, repeatedly raped, beaten, and humiliated by these fuckers, and uh, basically spends the rest of the movie hunting them down and wreaking horrible vengeance upon them. And that is it. Uh-huh. It was originally called Day of the Woman. It's sort of, uh, I guess, like a. The director had this high minded idea that it might be sort of some sort of feminist death wish type of thing. But in the end of the day, I think what this movie is about is watching this woman first be tormented and then uh, celebrate the violence of her vengeance. And uh, it's sort of. It appeals to every kind of dark corner of the psyche of the horror audience and to me in a way that doesn't make me feel good for having watched the movie. <laughs> no. There's, there's not a lot of fun to be had with this one. Zero fun. And, I mean, the, the subject doesn't call for any fun. I mean, I would be more upset with the movie if it did, like, the Last House on the Left, where there, or, or, or uh, what was that... Uh, the town that dreaded sundown where all of a sudden they had these weird comic moments that they threw in the movie for no reason at all. I think they thought they were breaking the tension, but in all they were doing is just being disrespectful of what had preceded. I think that there's some interesting choices, like the fact that there's almost no score to the movie kind That's of right. adds to a, like a weird, calm, disturbing element. Like, it does feel like you're just lakeside somehow witnessing this horrible shit because yeah. that, that, that artifice is stripped away. And this sounds weird to say out loud, but I'll say it. Just the sheer amount of screen time that our main character is stark naked in the movie kind of wears away at you. Like, it it, it takes the power away from it after a point and... and, and uh, becomes you know, I repeatedly sort of had the scowl on my face and was asking myself what am I watching what am I watching <laughs> what am I watching and so at the end of the day no I did not have fun with this and I don't know who I would recommend it to <laughs> well you can't see it but I've been nodding yes much. I'm nodding in agreement to everything you're saying um getting back to you said there's no score really to the film right yeah, you're right. That sort of adds to the realism, I guess, and maybe the uncomfortableness of it, where maybe you might feel like it's not a movie. You're just like sad watching this. And and it's just, it's really ugly. Um, <laughs> I don't, I mean, the thing is, I wonder if there's much to, if, if we're going to say much about it, because there's really not much to say. Well, there's stuff to say, but there's not much to the actual movie itself. Um I mean, it's, you're right. It's uh, three. Is it three, three, four guys? Four guys, right? Four guys in total. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I mean, and they're clearly they're all shitty men, and uh, they just attack this woman unprovoked, completely yep. unprovoked, and they uh, drag her through the woods, beat her, rape her, chase her through the woods, sodomize her, rape her again, follow her home where she's beaten again, and then raped with a bottle and. Uh, it goes and on left for dead. and on. And this, this takes up half of the movie. Yeah. Where there's there's no break in between. And you're right, she's naked the entire time. And it's not it's not pretty naked. It's um it's it's dirty, bruised, bloody. And uh, the director lingers. He lingers on those long shots of her just crawling away naked and it's it's not in his credit, it's not sexual at all. 
where I don't think you can say they're glorifying the way. No, but still, not at all. They're still. <laughs> but it does go on, and it is the only reason that the movie exists. Now, apparently, he and this actress were falling in love at the time. They eventually ended up getting married. There was obviously a lot of trust between the two of them, as there would okay, necessarily be. Um, they ended well. They ended up getting divorced eventually. But the, you'd have to have a lot of trust in that director in order to put yourself through that. You'd have to be a very brave actress. And I'm going to give her credit for like going there. That cannot be an easy thing to do. Where it gets really even more distasteful. This was originally called the Day of the Woman. Yeah, well, I think it's just, is it just AKA Day of the Woman? Is that part of the title? In order to get it distributed, he was having a real hard time finding a home for this movie just because of how ugly it was. He had to make a deal with this uh, distribution company, and part of that deal was that they could change the title. So they could give it this fake title where they pretend it's empowering? Exactly. Yeah. Well, and I think he would argue that he was trying to do that, but I think at some point the exploitation did take over. Like, oh, for sure. <laughs> like, and by the time she's getting her revenge on these guys, like, I'm, I'm, I guess, glad that she's getting revenge for these guys, but it, it has this weird inevitability. We know that she's going to get her revenge. We know that all of these guys deserve what's going to happen to them, and... It's not going to undo anything that we've seen. It's not going to, you know, uh, unbreak her. <laughs> like, she's now become this multiple murderer, this, this you know, victim. And yeah. if, you know, this sort of Dexter or Punisher version of empowerment is how we're going to approach the feminist slant on this, no. I would, I would argue that this is not a feminist movie. There's a, a great book. I hope I'm saying this right. If not, I guess I'll correct it. I think it's... Uh, I'm sorry, what I meant to say was Men, Women, and Chainsaws, Gender in the Modern Horror Film by Carol J. Clover. That's the book I'm trying to reference here. That's what I get for going off the fly like that. Female empowerment in horror movies and how even though there's a perception that women are are always victimized, that if you look at them plot-wise, typically the most powerful character in a horror movie is a woman. And uh, that there's there's an alternate case to be made. But the entire book is almost underlined with how much time they spend on this movie. Because in this particular case, I disagree. Whether or not the intention was there, I think we could talk about. But I would say that they failed in making this a female empowerment movie. Like, utterly. <laughs> when, she, when she gets her revenge, she still uses sexuality as her main weapon. Yeah. Which is, it's kind of right there. It's That's not the way, if you're going to be empowering women, that's not the way you should be using her, her main weapon. Um, I mean, nothing really... Nothing enjoyable happens at all in this movie until the bathtub scene. Right. I, I mean, when you see that scene and what happens on it, I mean, that is is a little bit... Uh, it is a fitting revenge, but, you know? But st- but still, what, what leads up to it, you yeah. know, she goes and seduces the guy, here, let me run you a hot bath, brings him home, there's a prolonged naked scene where they're just talking to each other in the tub, and yeah. and I, I just don't think this is how she would get her revenge. Um, I mean, it's a fact of what she cuts his, his dick off <laughs> in the tub and leaves him screaming to bleed out, but... And I think every man in the world, whether even though we hate this character, uh, at some part of us is going to blanch at the idea of having a dick off. <laughs> but if ever a character deserved it. No, you don't feel bad at all for him. No. And, uh, and arguably, I think that's probably the climax of the movie. Right. 
because he's the main the main leader of the bad guy group. Yeah. Uh, but there's still two more guys that she has to deal to with. Kill, just as a matter of doing it. But uh, um, one of them tried to play the sympathy card too. I'm not such a bad yeah, guy. Got, I've got a family. <laughs> like really? <laughs> oh, that was the main bad guy, yeah. Johnny. Yeah. And we meet his wife 90 minutes into the movie for some reason. We're introduced <laughs> to a new character. I love that. <laughs> no real reason. Oh, now we gotta meet this lady. Um, and I, I even I listened a little bit to, uh, yeah, that's right. So we're talking about the, the sexuality she uses to plot her revenge. Even the handicapped guy, she lets him have sex with her yeah. and waits until he's almost finished, and then she she kills him. Um, Why? I I do not know. Why? <laughs> Is it just so we can see her naked again? I mean, um, but again, we'd seen enough. Like, we'd seen enough. Like, 30 minutes into the movie, we'd seen enough. And there was a lot more movie to go. I fall back on my ancient, like, argument. Who is the movie for? Like, um, I don't think it's for feminist, you know, appreciators. It's not going to sell a feminist on the horror genre. In fact, I would say it's the opposite of that. I would yeah. say that Slumber Party Ma- Massacre is a much more feminist horror movie than sure. I Spit on Your Grave. <laughs> But, yeah, I don't get off on the vengeance that much. I'm already worn out by the movie, and it, th- there's something inevitable about it. Like, you know she's going to get her vengeance. You're not going to roll credits on her being buried in the forest somewhere, right? Well, there's there's a moment in the film, it's the second rape, where she's bent over the rock. The second rape, yes. Yeah. I mean, when she's being raped in that scene, she lets out possibly the most shrill scream in horror history. And it's at that point when you really, if you don't already, you don't really feel like, why am I watching this? Why am I watching this? Um, yeah, well, the reason I'm watching it is because my friend is a podcast and I have to finish <laughs> this. But other than that, you just you don't feel good about yourself for watching this. There's no soundtrack. It's just screaming. And it's, uh, I mean, I can't imagine there's guys like that out there. There probably is, but... You know, the idea of holding someone down while your friend has his way. I mean, no. I don't want to be around doing that. It's Ugh. it's just so... I think that's what makes it worse is, you know, all these naked guys' butts around it. Well, and I'm not saying that there's not reality to, like, evil men and obviously abuse of power and men and women. Obviously, that's a very real thing. But there's something dopey about these guys that takes away from their reality. The fact that they would think that this woman would actually be seducing them after they subjected her to that makes them so stupid as to lose any credibility, right? But we put up with it because at this point we need to see some vengeance taken on her behalf. Yeah. Uh, I I don't know. I don't know what else to say about it. I didn't enjoy it. I can't imagine a scenario in which I would watch it again. I don't understand or agree with it being a significant, quote, horror movie. I think the thing that makes it memorable is that it's as ugly as you would imagine it being. If ugly is what you're looking for, this delivers that. But that is all. Yes. I know Siskel and Ebert tore this one apart. Yeah. Back in back in the door, I, I wrote down a quote. They think they, I was listening to some of the commentary on it just to get other insight on it, uh, and I think the, they call it sick, reprehensible. And attending this movie was the most depressing moment of my life. Ouch! And uh, <laughs> um, I, I don't know. Uh, it's fair. I mean, at least they did not show it as an erotic thing. Um, right. They're holding her down. There's a lot of close-ups of the men's faces while they're doing it, and they're not. 
you know, they're not pleasant close-ups, and a lot of man butt. <laughs> but yeah. uh, I don't know. I, there's probably a, pop, a percentage of people that are into that kind of thing, maybe for the wrong reasons. But um, I don't know. These prolonged sequences are, are are pretty disturbing. It's scarring, and I guess like in that way, it is effective on your psyche, and that you kind of feel like you can't unsee it. Yeah. But that does not make it a good movie to me. Uh, there's sort of like a subgenre of movies, these rape revenge type yeah. films. Um, and you know, like this one's got, like you said, three sequels. And I just looked it up. It's uh, I Spit on Your Grave, uh, Deja Vu. And it okay. was just released, I think, straight to video. And it's uh, a direct sequel with the same cast. Ugh. And for some reason, it's two and a half hours long. I'm not interested. 90 minutes of this is hard to get through. This kind of film does should not be ninety or two and a half hours. I can't imagine a time when I would want to sit there for two and a half hours watching that. No, one and done. Um, thanks. <laughs> there is. Um, let me see. I wrote something on here. There's a more recent film called Revenge. Have you seen that? I have not. I know it by its reputation, though. <laughs> it's you know the same idea. It's a rape revenge film. Yeah. But that one is miles more entertaining than this. It's. Uh, I will recommend that film. Right. I've yes, heard a lot of people say good things about that. I just, I'm almost never in the movie, in, in, sorry, I'm almost never in the mood for a rape movie. You no. know? <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm in the mood for tonight? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, that one, it's, uh, you got to let reality kind of go at certain points, but uh, but that one, you can't wait to see the guys get what's coming to them. Yeah. This one, you just can't wait for it to be over. Over. Agreed. Well said, brother. So yeah, that was that was definitely a clip show, but like, it was a huge clip show. It was a monster clip show, and it was a pretty good clip show, I think. So uh, send your feedback to rankandreview at gmail.com, R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. Uh, I uh, always like to get some feedback. It's good for my old morale. Hopefully these technical difficulties I've been going to will be solved soon. I didn't want to sound like I was a big crybaby at the beginning of the episode. I just wanted to explain where I was at. Rank and review soldiers on because people are listening and uh, because I just... I enjoy doing it. It's just my outlook these days. So, once again, as always, from your host, Amanda Canadian, if you made it through this epic podcast, I really appreciate you listening. I really appreciate you telling your friends about the